Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Bombus, Eero, Simply Safe, The Great Courses Plus, and our supporters at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. Chuck Zukowski is a rare breed in the world of the paranormal. Unlike investigators who explore a particular phenomenon, Zukowski, an ex-law enforcement officer, pursues multiple areas of paranormal inquiry with equal enthusiasm. His hunt for answers has found him in some frightening situations, but he's survived them all so far, and in the process, collected a mountain of evidence on a wide range of paranormal events, including animal mutilation. He uncovered startling proof that unexplained mutilations primarily seem to occur along the 37th parallel line of latitude. His investigation gathering so much evidence that author Ben Mesrick interviewed Mr. Zukowski extensively, and the resulting book, The 37th Parallel, was a New York Times bestseller, released in 2016. Chuck is an outgoing and gregarious man who has hauled his family all over the country in search of answers to questions that many don't know exist. Ready to deploy at a moment's notice, he prides himself on arriving at the scene of an investigation within a few days or even hours of the incident and collecting exhaustive, thorough evidence that can be appropriately analyzed. The stories of his exploits are too numerous to count but the totality of his experiences to date point to a frightening hidden world of bizarre events. No cattle or animal mutilation story ends with an answer, and not every UFO or Bigfoot story ends with a brief and fleeting observation of the craft or creature. In fact, some Bigfoot encounters appear to have ended with violent death and even dismemberment. You might want to be aware of where these things have happened, because if you don't, your next hike in the woods could be your last. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. In the history of animal mutilations, 10,000 over the past 50 years, nobody has ever been caught or arrested. Every single one of them was eventually deemed unexplained. Chuck Zukowski, paraphrased from page 43 of the Kindle edition of Ben Mesrick's book, The 37th Parallel, The Secret Truth Behind America's UFO Highway. Join us tonight as we take a look at the grisly side of the paranormal in an interview with investigator Chuck Zukowski. And we're back. Yeah, folks, we got a great show tonight. Kind of funky, fun, and frightening all at once. But before we dive in, we wanted to take this opportunity to give a shout out to our good friend and recent guest of the show, director Seth Breedlove, whose company Small Town Monsters has just released the Bray Road Beast documentary that we spoke about just a few weeks ago on the show. Yeah, this really is a great film. And as you know, the Bray Road Beast and former guest of the show, Linda Godfrey, who was also in the film, are near and dear to our hearts. And this documentary is a truly fascinating deep dive into the topic. There's a ton of places you can stream, watch, or even order a DVD of this. And we have links to all of them in the show notes with this episode. But you can also just Google the Bray Road Beast and it'll pop right up. There are a few films out there on this creature, but this is the best one. So make sure you find the one directed by Seth Breedlove and released in 2018. Yes, and thanks so much for placing your orders for the Halloween Jack-O-Lantern Al t-shirts. Pre-ordering is done for those now, and the order should be shipping out pretty soon. 
And finally, I just wanted to give a heartfelt shout out to listener Simon Monroe. Simon lives up north, not too far from the broad, generalized area that might be in proximity to Forest's neck of the woods. Steady. (laughs) And Simon got one of the much-coveted, astonishing Halloween hoodies because it's cold up there, and he works super early in the morning delivering newspapers. And he was out working one morning when he literally stumbled across a young man sleeping under a tarp in the bitter cold in front of some upscale condos. Man popped his head out and apologized to Simon for being in the way. After talking to him for a minute, Simon discovered that the young man had been living on the streets for three years and was only 19 years old. Simon also noticed that he had nothing more than a light windbreaker to keep him warm. At that moment, Simon literally gave him the astonishing Halloween hoodie right off his back, knowing that they were out of production and he would probably not be able to get a replacement for it. Simon then posted this story to our closed Facebook group, and the ensuing chain of comments was truly inspiring. The outpouring of gratitude from so many of our listeners was complemented by a flood of emails and DMs on multiple platforms of folks offering to raise money for Simon to get another hoodie, even though they were out of production or to buy him something from the store themselves. Fortunately, our merch wizard, Craig Dransfield, with years of experience, had the foresight and wisdom to order just a few more hoodies than we needed, and we're pleased to report that Simon will be getting the true last (laughs) astonishing Halloween hoodie produced, shipped to him at no cost to replace the one he so graciously gave away to that unfortunate young man. We just wanted to say how grateful we are to have such great selfless listeners and fans, and we'd also like to thank Tess for really taking the reins on this situation and making sure the right thing happened. Okay, it's time to get to tonight's show, and I'm personally pretty excited about it. It's a step back from what we did last week with our Yokai episode, a palate cleanser between that show and our next one, which is our Halloween special. Chuck Zukowski has an amazing energy. I had a lot of fun interviewing him, and his passion for his work is contagious, and his stories are eye-opening. However, in much the same vein as last week, and this goes out to the guy who sent us an angry email about how gross last week's show was and how he had to jump up and turn it off and that we lost a listener. I I don't think I can go out to him because he's not listening anymore. (laughs) That's a good point. But clearly he was not paying attention to the show anyway or reading the descriptions, all of which had a warning about the content last week. We actually gave a verbal warning at the top of the show, even if you didn't read the descriptions. Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate he had that kind of visceral reaction, but it was written viscerally and mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, here's the crux of that warning, which we are making again, because tonight's show has a few gruesome tales in it as well. Scott? While not explicit in nature, tonight's episode will depict particularly graphic violence in a way that may not be suitable for younger children or any sensitive listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, let's introduce Chuck. Okay, calling Chuck Zukowski. Hello? Hello, Chuck. Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you just great. It's Scott Philbrook. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. All right. So I do want to talk about the 37th Parallel. This book was a New York Times bestseller. It's pretty amazing. How did you and the author, Ben Mesrick, how did you guys get together and get that going? Basically, in September of 2011, I was kind of toying with the previous years before that, 9 and 10, that I was looking at these animal mutilation investigations I was doing and UFO sightings in Colorado, New Mexico and stuff and some other things, you know, abduction cases, supposed abduction cases. Every one of my cattle mutilation cases, because I'm a former reserve deputy, 
mm-hmm. police officer. What I would do is I would I have a, uh, a clipboard and I take the clipboard with me and I'd sketch out the way the cow's laying on the ground and facing northeast, west, whatever, and then uh, and then the GPS coordinates. So I was kind of going through my previous notes and trying to look for a tie-in on some of this stuff because I had done enough of them where I thought, now there's got to be something. There's got to be a commonality, you know, that ties this stuff in. And then I started noticing, well, pretty much all these mutilations, at least here in Colorado, were happening on the 37th degree latitude, a little bit into 38th and a little bit into 36th, but basically the 37th. I'm going, oh, what's up with that? And I started looking at other things that was happening on a 37th degree latitude. And I saw, wow, you know, the Taos Hum falls into that. Aztec UFO crash falls into that, you know, Joplin spook lights, Cape Girard, Missouri, the UFO crash, Area 51. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) And so basically I started looking at this and I started going, hey, there's something going across the U.S. here. And so I called my sister, Debbie, who was a MUFON investigator for the state of Missouri. At the time, she was state director. Now she's actually on the board of directors from MUFON, and she's a state director. And so I kind of started piecing things together, and we started looking into underground caverns. And then the more I got involved with it, I started looking at... You can pretty much hit the majority of aquifers under the United States on a 37th degree you know, latitude if you need water, basically, or someone needs water. Sure. I started putting this piece together, and it's September 15, 2011, I did a press release on my blog, 37th degree latitude theory. And the one thing that clinched it for me, and I'm kind of going through this blog as it's a few years old, was – about that day that I started to do the blog, we had an earthquake down by Trinidad, and it was a very shallow earthquake at the depth of about two and a half miles. Now, shallow earthquakes are generally up to 60 miles, but this one was two and a half miles, and I started looking and going, well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, obviously, fracking wasn't really that big of a deal back in 2011 as it is now. So I started looking at that, and then within eight or nine hours, there was another earthquake in Virginia. And it was at 3.7 miles deep. And I started looking at that going, well, whoa, I put these together. Whoa, well, they're both falling on the 37th degree latitude. It was almost as if someone is digging underground, you know, these underground bases. And so that's when I started piecing it together. I even contacted the, once I did a press release on this, I contacted local media saying, hey, um, someone's digging underground over near Trinidad because it's too shallow to be an earthquake. It's something else is happening. And they just blew me off. Oh, what do you know, right? And lo and behold, you know, less than a year later, fracking comes out. And they go, oh, yeah, the people are fracking and they're causing these shallow earthquakes. And if you would listen to me, you would have known that a year earlier. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But lo and behold, they don't listen to me. So uh, I'm just a UFO guy, UFO nut, so basically. I, you yeah. know, I read about in the book, I feel like you're using that as a cover. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was known as UFO nut actually in California. So it's been over 25 years. The other day I found my California license plate that said UFO nut. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great plate. <laughs> and I've been out of here for 20 years. And my, my truck has a Colorado plate that says UFO nut. Yeah. My Harley has UFO biker on it. Nice. And then my... Uh, my travel trailer says UFO lab. So I kind of keep it all together. But the thing was, is people were calling me a nut. And they say, oh, you're just some crazy guy. You're just a, some UFO nut. And I was kind of getting mad. I'm going, you know what? I'm not going to get mad. They don't know any difference. That's just based on what they think. And so I decided to go ahead and roll with it. And so I just said, ah, fine. You're going to call me a nut. I'm going to become a nut. And that's when I moved out of here to Colorado. Within the first couple of months, I went ahead and generated the UFO Net website, and I've had it ever since. Well, it seems like from the book, you're dragging your family everywhere, and then you got Debbie into it, it sounded like, in the book. so Yeah, and then I drag <laughs> Debbie on TV, too, when I can. But the majority of all this stuff, you know, it's just... 
Yeah, unfortunately, it's me dragging my family, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now that they're grown up, they really don't do too much with it anymore. Although every now and then, you know, one of my kids will, will go on a, uh, an investigation with me just because they're curious. Yeah. But they're at the age now where, you know, they have their own families and everything. So sure. it's back to me doing it by myself again, which is cool because a lot of places I go, and, and we're going to talk about this tonight because this is scary Tober, right? Yes. There are some places that I've gone that I wouldn't want anybody else there because you put your life in jeopardy. And you really, really do. And I'm an idiot. I'll tell you right now, you know, I've gone out. The one thing I, I do or I have done in the past and I still do now is if I take off any place by myself, I always tell my wife where I'm going, location. And if I don't come back, at least they know where to send a search party type of thing. Yeah. In my opinion, for whatever reason, when I was quite young, there was more to this planet. There was more going on than what they were teaching us. And it was just like, it's like life is a lot bigger than what you're saying. And I don't know why I know that. I have no idea, but it was just like, I've always known that. And I always used to get in trouble all the time. So I've always had a love of, of UFOs and, and somewhat of the paranormal pretty much as long as I can remember. It even, even goes back to the weekly reader magazines I would save that had something about UFOs or Bigfoot or ghosts. I would save that, you know, and this is, this is going back to elementary school, for gosh sakes. So is it an obsession? I don't think it's an obsession. I think it's just for whatever reason, it just became part of my life. And I got to a point later on in my life where, you know, after we had my three kids and I could break away and do things on my own, I, I started doing more and more field investigations. And then and I came up with this brilliant idea. How about if we buy an RV? <laughs> that way we can go on vacation, save a lot of money because, you know, there's five of us with three right. kids. And it's this expensive to fly and stay in a hotel. I go, it's a lot cheaper. And then so I got an RV. But lo and behold, every time I went anywhere, I would stop by Roswell or Taos or Aztec. Or, yeah. you know? yeah. And I would do a quick investigation here or there. And one time, the kids still call it the ruined vacation because <laughs> one summer we hit all these Native American ruins. In my opinion, it was probably one of the best vacations. Chaco Canyon. Yeah. And uh, you know, we were hitting them all and it was just it ended up over Mesa Verde in, in Colorado. Sure. But is it an obsession? You know, some people may think so, but I think it's more of just my life. And uh, it's always been that way. And as I got older, I pursued it more and more. But even in high school, you know, my friends, we would talk about it. Go, oh, yeah, I used to throw stuff at us and say, UFOs, fact or fiction. And I would throw something at them, you know. I'm pretty familiar with Southern Colorado. My father lives in Denver. And I lived in Denver until I was nine. And then eventually I moved uh, to North Carolina where my mom's family was. But I would go see my dad every summer and we took road trips and he's the one that took me to Chaco Canyon and Mesa Verde. And I got to do all that stuff when I was younger. But here's the other thing. His best friends, they all worked for the EPA in Denver. They retired and they have a 100 acre ranch on the 37th parallel. And I've been there a couple of times, and I don't want to say exactly where it is, but anyway, one of the first things they told me when I went there, you know, because my dad's friend, so I've been there with my son and stayed for a few days. My wife and I, we went there as a family and stayed. They have a guest cabin, and they talk about cattle mutilations, and I've been wanting to go back and do a show on it for our podcast. When I read Ben's book and your stories, it all came back to me, and you're you're clearly the expert on it, so what I guess what I'd like to find out from you, the 37th parallel notwithstanding, I think people don't really realize how insane these stories are. And I thought maybe you could share with them some of the crazier cases that you came across in the course of your investigation, you know, maybe two or three of the ones that really were shocking for you. What's interesting and, and really cattle mutilation cases, 
Oh, gosh. You know, in my opinion, they're the most dangerous investigation you can do other than, you know, when you take off by yourself. That That's different. That's just stupid. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but basically uh, or an orchestrated case. And the reason for that is, is because you walk up to a dead animal and you really don't know why it's dead and how it died. And for all you know, if you don't do your homework, you don't do a lot of research first, this isn't something people can just jump into. This is why I'm the director of animal mutilations for uh, investigations for MUFON International. Is If someone wants to get in and do something like that, then you have to prep yourself ahead of time. You have to know what to look for in case it is viral or biological because you can take that home. And you don't want to do that, obviously. You don't want to take a virus home you know, give it to your family. And so the bottom line is it's really dangerous. You come across this animal, this animal's dead. There's no evidence at all how it died. It's just laying there. There's no evidence that the animal actually tried to survive while it was being killed. In other words, there's no scuff marks in the ground, no movement of the limbs, no movement of the neck, nothing. It's just laying there as it was placed. Really interesting. Then you have these strange cuts. It's void of blood. The blood's been removed a lot of times. The tongue has been removed from way inside the mouth. Cows can't bite their tongues off because they only have one set of teeth, right? And then um, there's cases where scavengers won't touch it. In other cases, scavengers will. But it's, it's really eerie. I've had some cases where, and this is something kind of very interesting. Most people, and even investigators still now, without knowing too much about this, think the animal's dropped. It's actually picked up from location A, wherever it was grazing, taken to a location B, where you know the mutilation took place and draining the blood and all that stuff. And then it's brought back to location C, which is the general area of location A. And I know that from based on not you know from what the ranchers say you know location of the herd was at the time that the cow was taken and then where the cow is now and then I actually had one case near western Colorado where uh we actually found the footprints about 60. I say we because at the time, Matt Morgan was with me, who was on my team. And what you do is after we do the, an investigation on the cow, I do a spiral starting at the cow. I, I do a circular spiral away from the cow to look for any type of evidence. And it depends on how much time the rancher gives you to be on his ranch to do. depends on how much you can do. Yeah. But as I was doing this spiral out, um, found footprints, cow footprints because it had rained and there was mud there. We found one set of footprints that was walking along the fence. And that's where it ended. And that was about 55, 60 yards, I think, away from the oh, 30 yards, maybe it was. I've done so many of these, I apologize. No, but, it's um, okay. And I'm interested in this ABC location thing because I don't, I don't believe that was that was in uh, Mesrick's book. There was a lot of stuff that he couldn't understand well or didn't put in because I mean there was just a lot of a lot of material. Yeah. The interesting thing is we actually found the location of where the animal was standing when it got picked up. Okay. And then it was mutilated. So um, that was kind of interesting. That was the one time where I actually found evidence that that actually occurred. Now, all the other cases is just based on the rancher's description of where the mutilation was. So anyway, the animal is, is placed back down and not dropped. And here's the reason why. It actually dawned on me when um, I did the cattle mutilation episode for the Science Channel, I'm explaining file season one, because what they did was, I think it was Africa, because you can't do it here in the U.S., <laughs> but they went to another country and, and they purchased a cow, had it slaughtered. So they, they got it from a you know slaughterhouse. And then they took this cow out to a site and they lifted it up via a, a forklift and dropped it. And so part of the special effects of the show shows this cow hitting the ground. Well, as it hit the ground, it moved. And I'm thinking... Well, yeah, that's right. 
there would be scuff marks if it hit the ground. So, A, if it was dropped from a helicopter or dropped, let's say, from a flying saucer, if it was just dropped, even if when it hits the ground, it would still move and leave scuff marks, but yet there are no scuff marks. So almost picture this energy force that places the cow on the ground, and it places the cow on the ground at different intensities because sometimes the cow will be laid there and it looks perfectly fine, the ground around it. Other times the ground is kind of uh, moved up around the animal as if like a crater, as if the animal came down pretty hard. And then there were other cases where the cow hit the ground so hard that it dislocated the rib cage from the backbone. I've heard about those. I've heard yeah. about that. Yeah. And I've had multiple cases of that happening and then actually break the legs too on top of that. And the legs are broken, yet there's no scuff marks on the ground, meaning it was just hit there and done. I mean, remember that old Star Trek episode way, way back in the 60s where there was this hand that came from a planet and grabbed the you Enterprise? Grabbed the Enterprise, yeah, sure. And pulled it in. Just picture that hand picking up a cow and then putting it back down after they're done with it. That's yeah. about the best way I can explain it. And in some of the cases that I've, I've had, the animal was laying in a ground, ground depression, about 16 to 22 feet diameter, almost like a crop circle, but it's not really a crop circle. It's just a ground depression, but something kind of messed with the soil, interrupted or disturbed the soil. And so I started taking soil samples from inside the circle and outside the circle. And then I sent them off to a, a company that does soil analysis. And I just say, okay, all I tell them is compare A to B, right? And then every one of the cases where they compared inside the circle to outside the circle A to B, the results are always the same. The cations or the CECs were different. The nutrients of the soil were changed and the soil was less soluble in the circle than outside the circle. Now that was happening in Colorado. Well, there was a case in Kansas City, Missouri, where we had a mutilation on 37th degree latitude. And so I had the investigator there. I, I explained over the phone how to properly take soil samples for me and take pictures of you taking the soil samples. And they did, and they sent it to me. And I sent it to the same lab, always the same lab to keep everything you know, the same. So you know things don't change as you go from lab to lab and got the same results. Now, Missouri soil is far different than Colorado soil. Colorado soils, there's a lot of sand in Colorado soil. Uh, Missouri soil, there's a lot of clay. Yet we got the same results. The cations were different. The nutrients were different. Then I had a case in uh, Georgia, and there was a mutilation. And I talked to the rancher, and he says, oh, my gosh, you know, it's in high weeds and stuff, and, and all that's pressed down. I'm going, oh, great. So I talked to him and convinced him to take some soil samples. I, I got to love these guys for doing this. This is a rancher doing this for me, right? <laughs> and he takes soil samples for me based on how I explained it, you know, and uh, sends me the soil samples. And then, you know, I had them analyzed, and I sent him the results back, and it was the same. So I'm getting the same results from soil in Georgia, same results of the soil in Missouri compared to the same results with the soil in Colorado. That shouldn't be. You know, there's more to astonishing legends than just what you hear in the podcast feed. That's right. Wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> Our astonishing website. Man, I wish you would keep up. Oh, right. We have a Squarespace website. Yes, yes, we do. And it adds so much more to the show. I mean, of course, you can listen to all the episodes there. But also, Tess regularly posts really interesting blog entries about all kinds of fascinating and timely topics we haven't had time to cover on the show. That's right. And in October, she does one every day, actually. That, exactly, right. And you can see pictures related to our episodes episodes and go down rabbit holes where there are related links and there's a bookstore and all of our sponsors offer codes 
And you can purchase all of the show's merch there, too, because we have our own store. All right, I get it. That's where you were going with this. Yes. Yes, I was. Well, I do know that all of that is possible for us because of Squarespace. I also know that whatever it is you want to showcase, whether it's a product or service you want to sell, something to promote, announce, publish, any cool idea you have that you want to create, turn into reality and show to the world, Squarespace is the easy and affordable way to do it. Yes, you can do this. You can easily make a website all by yourself and have it do everything it does for us and more. And Squarespace will make it beautiful, make it stand out, and most importantly, make it work for you. Stop waiting for someone else to turn your dreams into a reality. Now's the time to take charge of your own destiny and fortune. And you can start by heading on over to squarespace.com legends for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code legends to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com legends for a free trial and 10% off. Think it, dream it, make it with Squarespace. I'm Grace, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Do you have control soil from outside the circles in these locations, too? Yeah, yeah, that's A and B. So A is soil inside a circle. B is soil outside a circle. Sure. So in every case, I'm comparing A to B. And I take a couple different samples and send it to... I don't take a lot of samples because it's like... Fifty to sixty dollars a sample, <laughs> right? right. And, and it all comes out of my pocket. I don't yeah, have, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I take a couple of samples and I drop a couple hundred dollars each time, right? You know, doing soil analysis on this, and it's the same. It's, it's really interesting. Now, when you take soil samples, when you take them inside the circle and you want to take them outside the circle, you have to take them in an area where the soil resembles the soil that you're taking it from. In other words, if you're taking it outside the circle, you got you to take it, you know, 30 feet away at least, you know, to get away from that circle, outside the circle. But you have to look at the vegetation. You have to match yeah. the vegetation. You, you don't want to take controlled sample where there's a lot of high grass. You got to take the controlled sample where there's a bare area that's similar to the area where the cow is. I mean, you know, and this was stuff that the soil analysis lab explained to me because we sat down for about an hour or so and they explained to me how to take proper soil samples to get the best results because I was paying for this. And so this is this information I just pass on to the people that I wanted. And I really have only had a couple of people do it for me and they're really cool to be able to do that. A lot of the stuff I've done that here. And then just recently, um, beginning of this year, I bought a, a, a DJI drone, a Phantom 4 that has a 4K uh, camera on it. And we, I had a mutilation in July out here in Trinidad. And so I shot that sucker up 250, 300 feet up because I, I want some really cool aerial views now so I could look for other things. And this particular one was pretty cool because the animals, there's animal tracks like in a V formation fanning out to in to the cow and then fanning back out again. We always thought, well, maybe the cows kind of walk around and, and do whatever. And, hey, what happened to Joe? I don't know. You know, he was fine a couple of minutes ago type of thing. They all kind of merge to that location and then they just merge out in a V formation. It's way cool. It's like, what? And I had a case a couple of years back in, in Walsenburg where there were eight cows that were killed within less than two week period. Now, generally with mutilation cases, you'll have two to three happening around the same time frame. Doesn't necessarily mean they'll happen in the same area. I've had a case where it happened in Colorado and one happened in Missouri within a week. It's weird. 
so we can say, well, okay, well, obviously it wasn't a transient doing it unless he walked from Colorado all the way to Missouri in a straight line. You know? Yeah. And uh, the Walsenberg is the one that my dad's friends were, they were talking about articles in the, is it the Walsenberg Journal maybe? Or th there's a paper there, I think. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I had found out about it and um, I couldn't get any information about the eight animals from three different ranches. So I took time off of work. Now, I'm at the point in my life now, I design microchips. I'm an IC mass design engineer. Oh. And so a few years ago, I decided, okay, I'm going to quit. It's been almost 20 years. But I decided, okay, I'm going to quit my salary job and I'm going to go contracting. I'm going to be self-employed. This gives me the opportunity to take off on a moment's notice. If you're a salary person, you can't do that basically. But if you're a contractor, you say, yep, got to go. I'll just finish up tomorrow. Yes, I've been both. I much prefer the latter. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of just blew off of work and ran home real quick and grabbed you know, gear. And I have I have a, a box that's always ready to go. And now I have a vest that I take with me too from cases I have to walk a half a mile or something. I have to drive a box around with me. But so I grabbed that stuff and went down there. And I had no idea all I knew was the general location. And this is where detective work kind of comes in. And this kind of helped with some of the police stuff I've done in the past. I just drove out in the middle of nowhere on a county road. And I just waited for a truck to go by and stopped him and asked him, hey, did you hear about this? Yeah, I heard a little bit about it. you may want to go talk to this guy. Off I go. Yeah. And I jackrabbited a couple of different times. And I ended up, ended up meeting one of the ranchers that had the mutilations. And it was like, this was real detective work, you know, just to find out where the location was. But it's not something easy where you can just go there and get the information. A lot of times you got to pull the information out. A lot of times, too, you have to search for it before you're in the right place. But that's why they call it investigation. If, <laughs> if right. it was easy, we get a lot of couch investigators out there that think they know what they're doing. But, you know, until you actually drag your, you know, your behind out three hours and out in the middle nowhere and sit in a truck and try and wave people down and you know do all the footwork that's what detectives do so i was able to talk to one rancher and i saw his cows and then he turned me on to the other rancher and i saw their four cows and there was two more cows i couldn't get a hold of that rancher to get permission to go on his property and i won't jump a fence or anything you don't want to get shot <laughs> well, I, well you never want to get shot but i you know i don't uh, i want to make sure everything i do there's legality to sure. it because the legality to it makes it more viable and so I, you know i got to see you know uh, six of them and what's interesting about this, except for one animal that the rancher moved all of them were laying on one side of their body i can't remember if it was left or right but usually when i see a mutilation case in multiples, they're all laying on either the left or the right side. Now, here's this other thing that kind of threw me about this whole 37th parallel thing. The animals, I think 99% of them, except for the ones, there's like a 1% where, where basically they think an animal moved it. They're all laying east to west, west to east. The body was facing east to west or west to east. That's originally what turned me on to the 37th degree latitude that, it, you know, it goes east to west. And that's kind of scary. <laughs> when, yeah. when you're looking at that. And then we have multiple animals like the Walsenberg one. They all had similar cuts and they all matched. How far apart were they? There was two and then probably about a mile away, there was uh, four more within about a 30 yards scattered a bit. And then I think it was another 60, 70 yards, maybe 100 yards away, there was two more. Those were the two you couldn't get to. Yeah, the four were near a fence, and I would have had to hop the fence and get to the other two. But they were all within a line of sight. Yeah. All of them. Pretty much, but they were yeah. all, when I talked to the one rancher who saw the other two, I asked him, 
were they kind of pointing this way or not? And he told me, well, I'll be damned. I think they are. You know, I think they're they're kind of facing the mountains. And when they were facing Santa Cristo Mountains, that's kind of going east, uh, west, I'm sorry, and from where we were. And that's, you know, I was basing that last two, but at least six of them from what I could see. Five for sure. The sixth one, the, the rancher said it was facing the same as the others, but he had moved it. He flipped it over to see if anything happened on the other side. That's that's really, really interesting stuff when you start seeing there's a lot of commonalities with this. Now, if you want to be an investigator, a uh, UFO investigator or paranormal, however you want to do it, and you're interviewing different people about what they saw or what they experienced, I just want to kind of explain this to all, all the listeners out there. The best way to get the best information to help you with your investigation is you you go ahead and you interview your multiple witnesses and there's going to be variances in, in all their stories. That's just the way humans are. You know, some things you'll remember, some things you won't. And anyway, so just take the commonality. If you're interviewing three or two, you know, or even 10, what's common? What's the one common thing that they're all saying? Right. That's what you focus on. Don't focus on anything else. Oh, I saw lights and it shot off this way and that way. And it's saying and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But if they all said it shot this way and that way, forget about the singing. You know, that, that could just be their interpretation or maybe yeah. it did sing for them. But yeah. if you're going to spend your time, your personal time and money to do an investigation, you obviously want to get the best bang for your buck, obviously, your time and your money. So go with the commonalities. And the commonalities with these cattle mutilation things was, you know, facing east to west, being dropped or placed, and then the cut marks. Now, the cut marks, this is kind of really interesting, too, because the cut marks on the animals don't necessarily mimic each other. There are your classic ones, like the one in July of this year, where the whole side of the jaw was cut open. You can see right down to the jawbone and the teeth, and those are classic. That goes way back to 67 with Snip, Snippy the horse, or actually the, her name was Lady. But those are very common stuff. But a lot of the other cuts may not be so common. I know a lot of investigators say, well, they're going in here because of, you know there's glands there, or they're coming this. You know, I had actually written a blog, I don't know, I think it was last year, and I said, you know, it's all about the blood. Because out of all the cases that I've investigated, the blood's always taken. The cuts may be a little bit different. What if, <laughs> who's ever doing this, and I'm just throwing it out there, I'm not saying I believe this, but what if who's ever doing this cuts the animal to make it look like it was killed by an animal, but they actually wanted the blood, and that's what they want. Mm -hmm. They don't care about the pieces. Maybe they take the pieces just to throw people off. Just for sake of this story, let's say it's an alien, okay? I'm not going to tell you I believe that aliens are doing this, but I'm saying that maybe there's a 70% charge. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many cases have you investigated? Personally, I don't know. On the, uh, the actual animals and then and then the sites, got to be just over 100 or so. Okay. And then the hundreds after that that were over by phone. Yeah. You know, and stuff like that. And uh, I get those too. But, you know, that's a lot of animals that you actually take the time and go see and you start seeing all this. The interesting thing is, is like I was saying, it's, it's always about the blood. The one thing I was pointing out there was, let's say it is an alien and aliens are doing this. Okay. First off, you have to think, okay, why would someone pick up an animal from a ranch, take it to another location, kill it? drain of blood, cut it up, and then put it back. Now, here in Colorado, when you mentioned you'll get shot, that's absolutely true. There's a state law here in Colorado that allows ranchers to protect their livestock. If they catch someone on their property killing their animals, they can shoot them. That's law. 
they are allowed by law to protect their livestock in any way they can. So you're a bad guy. You're going to hop a fence. You're going to grab an animal. You're going to cart it off in a truck to another location. You're going to kill it. You're going to bring it back or however you do it and drop it back. You know, there's two opportunities that the rancher could catch you and shoot you. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Stealing it and bringing it back. So let's say you're an alien. And I got to tell people out there too, some of these investigators – you know, when they say, well, aliens were visiting the planet, they should be doing this. They should be doing that. We have no clue. I wrote a blog a couple of years ago. It was called To Think Like an Alien, You Gotta Be an Alien. All right. <laughs> yeah. We really don't know. We can speculate. Well, if aliens exist, they should be. Then why haven't they landed on the White House lawn? Why? That's what you would do if you were an alien. But we have no idea how aliens think. None. And for all we know, that it could be very regimented, it could be very robot-like. And a lot of uh, you know, investigators' research actually say gray aliens are very systematical, robot-like beings anyway. You know, they're just like worker ants. They're just doing their thing. And so here you have an alien that doesn't think like a human, and maybe they don't have emotions like a human, or personalities that gives us the opportunity of thinking of you know, other different ways of how things could be done. They just say... Well, I don't want this guy to think that, you know, we're stealing it. So we're going to take the cow. We're going to cut it up, make it look like that, you know, it was just killed by a, by another animal. We're going to take the blood out and then we're going to put it back over there so he has his cow back. In other words, I'm going to steal your car. I'm going to take it to another location. I'm going to take the engine out, but it's still your car because it's registered to you. So I'm going to bring your car back, you know, without an engine. It's useless to the, <laughs> to the rancher. Yeah. But alien's point of view, hey, you know, that's your property. I'm just giving it back to you after I used it. We go into aliens down the road, too, if you want to talk about that. But basically, you know, we don't really know how some of these aliens think, greys especially. You have to leave everything on the table, as crazy as it sounds, because lo and behold, it actually may point to that location. You don't ever want to block something out because you think it's silly or you think it doesn't relate because you, you really don't know because you're talking about the unknown. And that's why it's called the unknown. Because we don't know. You could actually be missing some very, very valuable evidence or information if you kind of block something out. Leave everything open on the table and look at it every now and then. And because you may have something that may go back to it, you know, like what I've been finding with the, the cows actually being placed. If I would just assume all the time they were being dropped, then I never would have realized, okay, there's an energy force that is placing the animal. And depending on the intensity of the energy force, depending on where the energy force is coming from, places the animal on the ground at different levels of magnitude, meaning enough where it'll crush its bones or enough where it just kind of lays there. But I've seen both kinds. Now, I have had another investigator talk to me about this, and he came up with a really interesting thing saying that, well, have you ever considered portals opening up and putting the cow back? It's a portal that the aliens can open these portals and they could be somewhere else. You know, they don't necessarily have to be hovering over the ranch in their craft. And then they take it and then they put it back through a portal. And, that, and the energy from the portal is what's causing the nutrients. I'm going, that's kind of goofy sounding, but you know what? I got to leave it as a possibility. Why? Because I don't know. But you kind of leave it. And so basically the next rancher that I had a mutilation, I said, any flashes light, anything unusual, you know. But I'll tell you one thing, a lot of the ranchers I've talked to have seen are balls of light. They're not orbs. Orbs are ghost investigators, you know, and I've done some ghost investigating. 
orbs are are little lights that you can almost see through and those are the spiritual lights that usually uh you know a lot of these shows on tv ghost adventures ghost hunters pick up and they call them orbs balls of light are very mechanical and they could be anywhere from the size of a golf ball to the size of a volkswagen or they could be the size of a, a golf ball and emit light the size of a Volkswagen. So we really don't know. It's really interesting stuff. This is physics that's a little bit beyond us. Um, either way, the ranchers in the in the Walsenburg area, Trinidad area, Weston, they've seen balls of light. And sometimes the balls of light will actually interact with the people. And uh, I got a really good case. I can tell you who's kind of scary a little bit. Do you want to hear a little scary case? Yeah, absolutely. It's Scaretober. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I really apologize to Rancher Miller because he thought it was uh, ghosts, but it was much different. So he has two houses. He has his family house and his wife, Lynn, and then he has his ranch house. And his ranch house is closer to all the corrals and the barns and stuff. So when he has work to do early in the morning, he'll just sleep in the ranch house, which used to be the old old house right and then they built a new house and the new house is where they actually live but so he doesn't wake up his wife he'll stay in the ranch house certain days he's bedded down at night now and sometime in the middle of the night and his bed is next to a window and he's sleeping and then all of a sudden he feels something on his arm and he looks up you know it wakes him up and he sees the hair on his right arm start to rise up and he feels this tingling feeling and he looks out the window, and his bed's right next to the window, and, the, and it was during the summertime, and the shades were open, and he, he saw two balls of light about the size, I think he said about the, in between a softball and a volleyball, and they were side-by-side parallel, and they were coming straight from the ground up to where his window is. You know, he didn't know what to think. You know, he was just like, oh, shoot. <laughs> you know, what's going <laughs> What is this? And as they're rising up from his window, his right arm, got real tingly, really tingly, right? And then he lost sight of him because the, the lights passed above his, you know, the window pane, the top part of the window seal. And then he's lost him and he didn't see any light glow or anything or shadows or anything like that. He just saw the lights. And then all of a sudden, the tingling feeling went from his right arm, started to cross his body from his right side. He was laying on his back to his chest. And his chest started getting all tingly, and he started getting this tingly feeling almost as if it was a, a mild shock, all right? Just kind of like a vibration type of shock. Not enough to hurt him, but it's like, you know, shocking him. And then all of a sudden, the bed started just jumping up and down, like the Exorcist movie with Linda Blair, you know? Yeah. How the bed was shaking back and And he's hanging on to his bed going, oh, shit. You know what they you know? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? And the energy passed through his center to his left side and stopped, and the bed stopped. And he's just he's in shock. He's hanging on the bed. He doesn't know what to think. Now, this poor guy, he's in his 70s, right? And he's like, what the heck was that? And then all of a sudden, he feels this tingling feeling in his left arm. <laughs> and it starts passing from his left arm towards his chest. And it starts getting tingling. And all of a sudden, you can feel that tingling in his chest again, and then the bed all over again, right? And, and the energy passed from his left side to the center to his right side. And then after a couple seconds, it stopped. And he's just kind of laying there, and he's like, God, my heartbeat must have been 180 beats to 200 beats. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And all he could think about was like exorcism, you know, demonic. The whole He didn't know what to think. And, you know, he called me and I went down there and talked to him. Now, granted, you know, Trinidad's two and a half hours from my house. Yeah. But, you know, this is something 
I had to go see him. And we sat down and talked for a bit. And I do know that the, now I'm an engineer and my background, even though, you know, my background is microchip design, my degrees are basically business and certification electronics and stuff. But I got involved in electronics, you know, 30 some years ago. So I have an idea about what happened. It's called, you know, it's electrical field, an EMF, electrical magnetic field. And so what these balls of light were doing was their probes. They are mechanical devices. And what they were doing is they were rising up. I'm not saying they were scanning him, although some people may think that's the case, but they were emitting so much energy that it caused the hair on his arms, you know, almost as if there's a lightning strike nearby and you feel that. Uh-huh. Now, now, he didn't smell any ozone, so there was nothing burning because I asked him that. There was no smells. It's just that kind of sensation. So you have these balls of lights, and what they were doing was they were passing over his house. And as they passed over the roof of this ranch house, which is a one-story house too, that's what caused that electromagnetic field across his body. Now I asked him, I said, uh, Tom, you have a metal frame, right? That, that's not a wooden frame bed. That's a metal frame bed. And he goes, yeah, and I said, springed? Is it springs with a mattress on top? He goes, yeah, springs. Coil springs. There was no box springs like we normally have. It was coil springs. And a mattress, I'm going, well, there you are. It was an electromagnetic field. And as the electromagnetic field passed over the bed, the springs, the actual structure itself of the bed was reacting to the electromagnetic field, being magnetized and jumping back and forth. And that's what was happening. And then as it came back again, it happened again. But he didn't see the lights didn't come back down. They just kind of like went off. He thought at first that, oh, you know, that it was ghosts. Now, as scary as ghosts and demons <laughs> and Linda Blair are, it's more scary to think that it was alien. Yeah. And then now it's, why are they interested in me? Well, he's had a lot of mutilations. And this is what I found out, too, about mutilation cases. And I can't tell you why, other than the fact I think it's just because of the way that rancher handles his herd. Who's ever doing this comes back to the same rancher. Now, uh, there was uh, Rancher Sanchez. I've done a couple of cases, four or five or six for him, I think it was. And he had moved his cows in this pasture, and they were surrounded by two other pastures of two other ranchers and their cows. Basically, in the San Luis Valley, it's like, hey, Sanchez, could you do me a favor? Can you move your cows out to my pasture and cut the grass? Okay. Yes, yes. I've heard about that, yeah. And that's what they do. So his cows were surrounded by two other ranchers' cows. And... He got hit again, rather than touching the other rancher's animals that went after him again. So even when he moved his cow, and then I actually talked to another rancher who moved out from Texas. He got hit in Texas, came out here to Colorado, got hit again. So he was actually followed. So it's really, really interesting that the level of technology. Now, we have fingerprints, and that's what, you know, uh, they can tell me from you through a crime or whatever. But we also have different energy signatures, too. Now, if you have the technology you could actually track someone based on their energy signature. It's just a thought, but you know, we're all wired the same, but we all run differently and we all give off different types of electrical fields because we're basically, everything fires, our nerves, everything fires with electrical you know, impulses. So we all give off a different field. So if you had the technology, you could actually track a person based on that signature electron, you know, of their field. Maybe that's what they're doing. You know, no idea, but every one of the cases I've done, the animals... They're just naturally grazed. They, you know, other than alfalfa every now and then or something like that, it's it's all off the, all the property, and uh, they don't get injected with any steroids. So, you know, this is the type of beef you would buy at Whole Foods or something, you know. So it's really interesting what's happening with the animals, but who's ever doing it? They're very very specific of what animals and even what ranchers. 
And once they're happy, like, you know, you can have three McDonald's within, you know, two miles of your house, but the one McDonald's, maybe for whatever reason, the hamburgers taste better. So you keep going back to that one, although yeah. you, you have two other opportunities. And it, supposedly they all took the same thing. That's kind of the way I can explain that for whatever reason. Just really, really bizarre things. And and so when he told me that story, he said, and the reason why he thought it was ghosts is because at the other house, they were talking one time and, and his family was there and, and he heard something in, in the kitchen, hit the ground, and they went into the kitchen and there was a, a, a big knife that was on the counter and that was on the opposite side of the kitchen laying on the ground. And they go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, we got ghosts or we got something over here, picked up that knife and finally they all heard it, right? And I said, I bet you that wasn't a ghost. I bet you something was flying over. That just happened to be the, the largest metallic instrument laying on a counter, got picked up. The magnetivity, right, mm -hmm. of whatever was flying over, you know, picked it up and dropped it. Because on his ranch, he's seen the balls of light before. And then also people have, driving by, had seen balls of light. And then about four years ago, there was a couple of uh, hunters. What they'll do is, you know, they'll pay certain ranchers if they can hunt deer, beginning of deer season, yes. you know, on our part of the ranch. And he's got a lot of acres. And so he even showed me just in July, just this year, you know, where the tree stand is that if they want, they can use that tree stand. Well, so there was a couple of hunters sitting in that tree stand and it was, uh, they got there at dark early in the morning. So, you know, you can't shoot animals at dark. You have to wait till first light. So they were there an hour ahead of time. So when first light, they could see the deer. And uh, before it was light enough, they could see a ball of light moving around on that field out there. And it really scared them. And after they, they watched it float around and it kind of just shot off in the air, floated around and it just blew out. And one of them got a picture of it. I've been trying to get a hold of find out who that guy is. has got a picture of it with a cell phone. But they made it a point to go back and talk to Tom and said, uh, this happened and showed him the picture and said, uh, thank you very much. We're not hunting here. And they left. <laughs> <laughs> and that happened one other time in San Luis by Taurus Mountain. Uh, Rancher Taurus had a mutilation, and I did a mutilation case out there. And there was a couple of hunters that were out there. And same thing, they were out there um, early in the morning waiting for first light. And they saw a big light that was bouncing from one mountain. They're not really big mountains. There's like mountain sort of hills bouncing from one peak to the other peak. And it started coming around where they were then. And they got scared. They ran to their ATV and the ATV wouldn't start. The battery was dead. And so they ran down the trail to where their diesel truck was. And it was a dually diesel. The guy who owned it started up and it barely started. Now, dually diesels usually have two batteries. And he's never had this problem before. And he had problems starting it. And then he, they got out of there. And they came back later on that day to get the ATV. And the battery was completely dead out of the ATV. And, you know, that wasn't the case. So whatever that ball of light was... They drained the battery of the ATV and almost drained the battery uh, of the truck. And they, too, told Rancher Torres, I said, uh, no, thank you. We're not coming back. <laughs> and they left. Matter of fact, they didn't get their deer that season because whatever they saw really scared them. Wow. Just some really, really, really cool stuff. And it's all based on electromagnetic fields. I wanted to go back and ask you a couple of questions about the soil samples. When you took the samples outside of the circles that were, you know, technically your control samples, I'm presuming that they would reflect the regional differences that were to be expected. But then the samples that were inside the circles were consistent regardless of the region. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, basically the certain nutrients, because every soil across the U.S. has got the same type of nutrients. Right. So it's just particular nutrients where were altered. And those were the nutrients that have to do with solubility. 
So basically, the soil in the circle is less soluble, doesn't retain water as much. You can drop water on it. I mean, it's not like dry soil, which is one thing, but that's the big difference, or they call it the cations, you know, the CECs between the two. And that's what we were seeing between the three states. There was a case in Missouri also on the 37th parallel. It was uh, Marley Woods, Missouri. And I actually shot some footage of a ball of light coming up just for a second. And they've been seeing these balls of light in Marley Woods for like generations. Sometimes they see one or two, and sometimes they see a stadium of lights. So it's not something that we consider normal. And the animals just go crazy. You know, the geese and the ducks and the dogs, everybody starts barking and even before we can see the light pop up. So, you know, the animals have a, a heads up first. And then that's when you know, okay, get ready. And the, and the lights always show up in around the same place. But um, that particular area, there was a, uh, a mutilation. And I forgot if it was Nancy Talbert. I apologize if it's not her. But uh, she was the investigator at the time. And when she took soil samples inside, it was the same thing where the, the soil was less soluble. So um, I was able to even compare my findings with her a few years earlier. So it's, it's kind of interesting how this, this kind of works out. Marley Woods is pretty cool, too. Other scary stories in that area, there was a, uh, a ranch hand. I mean, we got to interview these people. We were down there, and I was working with uh, Ted Phillips at the time. Ted Phillips was trained by uh, J. Allen Hynek. Oh, wow. Even Don Schmidt was uh, from Roswell was, was trained by J. Allen Hynek. So these guys, they really know their stuff. And so I'm working with Ted Phillips, and uh, so I'm interviewing some people down there. And there was this ranch hand that was living in a small travel trailer on the ranch. And uh, sometime in the middle of the night, the whole trailer, it's on wheels, but the wheels, there's jack stands. Yeah. To level the trailer out so it doesn't move. And bam, something hit the front of his trailer and got you know, just scared the heck out of him. <laughs> and he jumps out, you know, he's holding and going, what the heck, something just hit my trailer. He goes out there, and there was nothing out there. And the front part of his trailer was caved in. And it was kind of rounded caved. It wasn't as if something like a car hitting it where there would be structure to it. It was kind of curved. So something hit him. And I go, well, that's pretty interesting, okay? And you keep that in your files. In my case, my Z files being for Zukowski. Okay, that's information I, I don't want to forget because it may pop up somewhere down the road. Well, lo and behold, a year or so later, I was back again with my sister, Debbie, and we're investigating the Marley Woods with Ted Phillips again. You know, And this time I was doing some experiments, light experiments and some cool stuff. Well, my sister and I interviewed another rancher. What happened was a rancher and his wife were in a pickup truck, and this is during the daytime, and they went out to a field down a ranch road into a, an area where, um, where there were cows. And the grass was a little high from where he had, you know, he thought the cows were in this part of the, of the field where they were growing this crop because he caught them in there before, I guess, or something or other. And they were, so he went to go check. And they're both pretty big people and they're heavy set. And he was a big old boy, big old rancher boy. And he gets out of the truck and he walks in this field and she can see the, the grass or whatever crop it was, uh, was going up to about his waist high. And he's walking, and all of a sudden, he's gone. He just drops down. And she saw him fall, and that's what she thought he felt. So she rolls a window, and she's yelling, is there, are you okay? You know, you okay? And it's nothing. And so she gets out of the truck, and she kind of walks over, and she walks through in the field to the area that he's at. And as, as, her walk, as she gets closer, she sees the crop flattened, and he's laying in, in the middle of the crop, pinned laying on his on his stomach and his face is pinned 
and he's kind of like, you know, trying to say something to her. And she thought, oh, my God, you know, he's having a heart attack. And as she got closer to him, she hit the floor. Something pushed her from above and bam, she hits the ground. And she's flat on her stomach, too, looking at him. And they're both pinned by some unknown force. They couldn't see anything. So there was some type of energy that just dropped him. It was holding him to the ground. And then as she got closer, she got within that force and, and she got pinned to the ground also. Now, this was in the same general area, yeah, within a quarter mile of where a year before I had heard the story of the ranch hand where something hit his trailer and there was nothing out there. And then he even explained that at one point uh, he went out on another night investigating while the animals were just going crazy, like thinking there was coyotes. And he goes, I, you can believe me or not, you know, but there was some type of a hooded figure that was kind of like walking by, but it wasn't really walking by. It was kind of like floating, but it wasn't really floating. I'm going, okay, what was it? Floating or rocking? He goes, well, it was kind of in between. And it moved off a quick. And I go, what'd you do? And he goes, I ran back in the trailer. <laughs> the one particular case in, in, in Western Colorado where there was a, a mutilation and lights were seen and craft was seen that, that the wife doesn't even want to go outside anymore. Her husband's a rancher. It scares her. She doesn't like to go outside by herself. She won't do it. She's not afraid of bears, coyotes, mountain lions. No. No, she's afraid of the lights. She can handle the animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. It gets kind of scary sometimes. It's one of those adrenaline pumps that you get when you're in an area like that or if you witness something yourself. For me, that's the my extreme games. I don't need to cliff dive or, or do any of that stuff, which is scary for me to do. But, you know. I've said it before. And you'll say it again. <laughs> yes, I will. Nothing makes me feel like a hundred bucks, like a new set of tires or new high quality socks. Yeah, I get that. And think about it. Both items are what's between you and the ground. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you must be talking about our new Bombas socks, right? Indeed I am. And I know what people out there are thinking. They're just socks, right? Well, who cares? Let me tell you something. Not all socks are created equally. Your average sock can have bulky stitching on the inside of the toes that irritates. The heels can slip down and bunch up in your shoes you know that's a personal pet peeve of mine but you don't get that with bombas socks no you don't and that's because bombas's two years of research and development has led to a superior design like a seamless sock toe that your toes won't feel and stay up technology 133 tension levels were tested to find the perfect tension that's comfortable, stays in place while not being too loose, and never leaves a mark. So no more bunching up at the heel in your shoes. And that's especially important for me, I guess everyone else too, because if you're going on a run, or even for a short hike, those things can add up to blisters right quick. And Bombas's arch support system and cushioned footbed provide support and comfort without the added bulkiness. So just imagine if they feel great doing strenuous activities, They'll really feel great just walking around all day. To keep with the car tire theme, Bombas socks have become my daily drivers. Me too. And I also love that Bombas is a socially generous company because for every pair sold, a pair is donated. Just do your feet and yourself a favor. Go to bombas.com slash A-L. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash A-L. And you'll get 20% off your first order when you use promo code A-L. One more time, to get 20% off your first order of superior socks, go to Bombas, that's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash A-L, and use promo code A-L at checkout. This is Jonathan in California, and when my wife isn't telling me I'm a nerd, 
She's listening to Astonishing Legends. I want to talk about like a couple of the stories that stand out to you in your history. I mean, there's a couple in the book, the 37th Parallel, that I'm interested in hearing from you about. And then I also wanted to hear about the one that you described in the the police report that you read. Oh, yeah. This story I'm going to tell you first, um, if for your listeners out there, if you buy the book or don't buy the book, I don't get any money from it. So, <laughs> so I can tell you, if you want to read about this particular story, I'm going to tell you, you can go to the Simon & Schuster site and then uh, search the 37th parallel. It'll be under Ben Mesrick. And I believe they still have the first chapter available to read. Everything in the book is true, but there's some fluff in between the trueness because Ben Mesrick's a writer. And he ties everything together. So there's a little bit of fluff, but the actual events that, you know, happened. What really happened was I was on the Psychics radio show and she's in uh, in Uray, Colorado. She contacted me a month or two later. She said, you may not believe this or not, but I'm in communications with the Bigfoot family. They're coming through our area because she's a psychic. And I'm going, right, okay. <laughs> you know, now for all the people out there, I, I got to tell you, reason why my sister and I work really well together because my sister's an intuitive. And, I, and I've had some psychic abilities as a kid, just here and there, and that's about it. But I'm very analytical. And so I, I look at things from a science side and very analytical side. So here's, I have this lady telling me she's in communication with a Bigfoot family. I'm going, okay, you know, what are they saying? You know, what do they want? They go, well, they kind of want to meet a couple of investigators. And I thought of you and Joe Fax. And I'm going, Right. Okay. <laughs> I toyed back and forth with it for a couple of weeks. And, and she kept, you know, no, I'm serious. You know, we had big footprints. And then finally she sent me a couple of pictures and there were some Bigfoot tracks near her house in the mud. I'm going, okay, she's got something going on there. Now, whether or not she's actually talking to him, I can't tell you from an analytical side, but you know, there is some evidence there that there's something going on. Now for my house, this is a five hour drive. So it's not like something I can just hop and do. Yeah. So I grabbed Joe Fex out of Denver. I live in Colorado Springs. So I drive an hour out of my way. And then we got to drive six hours to this location. So we only have one vehicle. And we were over at her place. And then she takes us on top of this mesa. We're about 10,000 feet up. Now, for anybody that lives in Colorado or any place where there's aspens, uh, you know, the aspens stop at a certain level. And then it's all pine trees after that. So we're above the aspen level and we're in the pines. And we're on this dirt road. And I guess we're well, an hour and a half or two hours maybe on this dirt road. And she takes us to this location. She doesn't know the exact location. She just knows we're headed in the right direction, okay? So she's my GPS. She says, we got to go this way. This is late afternoon, early evening now. Okay. And we're traveling on this county road and we're going on this road. And this county road turns into a, a trail, you know, wider than an ATV, but still traveled by trucks and stuff. And there's pines on each side of me. We're out in the middle of a forest now in between these pines and stuff. And a little further, a little further. She goes, and we come up to an opening, a meadow. And she goes, this is it. This is it. I'm going, okay, well, my psychic GPS just told me this is the location, you know. <laughs> and not to be insensitive, but, you know, you have to understand that's what I was thinking at the time. And so we set up a couple of lawn chairs and a little bit of a day camp there. And it was already, you know, nighttime. And so my, my truck's sitting there. I have a 35-millimeter camera, and then I have a... Uh, a couple of different video cameras. Well, they're eight millimeter Sony Handycams. And so I had a couple there of them there and some extra batteries. So she's there with my buddy, Joe Fix, and they're kind of sitting off the corner. And I'm in the middle of this kind of a meadow, maybe 50 feet, 40 feet away from whatever. And I'm kind of just keeping her watching, seeing what happens. And she says, you know, they're supposed to show up. So I'm going, 
okay, well, I'm going to be standing in the middle of a meadow, you know, and I'm not going to be inside the trees where they are in case they show up. <laughs> right. I'll be able to see these suckers coming, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. And I'm uh, going, you guys are fools being there. I'm going to be out here in the middle. And the psychic lady, she started flipping out. This is about 9.30, quarter 10 now. Because we got thinking, well, what's this going to happen? But we have all night. What the heck? You know, Saturday night. And she started flipping out. She goes, we got to get out of here. And when we have to get out of here. Now, this is where what happened afterwards. I, I didn't really challenge her psychic ability, maybe the levels of her psychic ability. But at least I knew that at that point she was an intuitive where she could sense something. Right. And she goes, we got to go. We got to get out of here. Why? Are we supposed to meet the family, Bigfoot family here? You know, I'm all ready. And uh, she just started flipping out. And Joe goes, see that? I'm going, what? The flashes of light. I'm going, what flashes of light? But they were closer. I'm out in the middle of this meadow, and they were closer to the woods. And they were kind of looking to the other end of the woods, and they could see flashes of light coming out through the trees, just like flashes of light. And not like a flashlight, just like flashes of light in different areas, high and low, and, just, and happening almost like flash bulbs going off and stuff. But they were dim, but he could see them and she could see them from her location. And she goes, we gotta go, we gotta go now. And we're all gonna die. And she is flipping out on me. And almost to the point where she's convulsive. I've never seen anybody so scared in my life, you know, other than watching stuff on TV. So this is really happening. And she is really scared. Something's gonna kill us all. And I ran back to my truck, which was not too far away from me. And I grabbed my night vision binoculars, or night owl binoculars, and because from my location, they were closer to the lights, and I looked through the binoculars, one, and I could see flashes. I'm going, holy shit, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. So I ran back, and I grabbed my handycam camera to get it on video. And I run out there, and I get a little closer. I turn on my handycam. Meanwhile, I'm telling Joe, I said, okay, just pick up, just grab the stuff, just grab it. We're going to throw it in the back of the truck. And she's clinging on to him, screaming, we're dying, we're going to die, we're not going to see tomorrow. We're... And oh my God, you know, I'm going, holy crap. And I turn my camera on, and I turn on uh, video mode, and it goes out. Just like that. I'm going, what? And I turn it back on, there's, there's no juice, nothing, the battery's dead. So I ran back to the truck, and I grabbed two more batteries, I put them in my pocket, I took one out, and I put it on the camera, turned it on again. On video mode, done, gone. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, oh, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Meanwhile, Joe's coming towards me with the gear, and she's hanging on to him like this is the end of the world right now. So, okay, okay, I have a photo mode on this camera. And I'm thinking in my head, maybe if I just turn it on and I put it on photo mode, maybe it won't use as much energy as trying to fire up the video mode. I don't know. But I turn it on, I hit the photo mode, and I get like one snapshot. If you want, I'll, I'll email you that picture. Yeah, I would love to see. Is it on your website? I didn't post that on the website. This is just for you. You see a beam of light coming down, another light off at a distance. That was it. That was the only picture I got. And that camera went out. Meanwhile, at that point, so I grabbed my my 35 millimeter camera with a flash of how much, and I was shaking because she was crying, just crying, and and we're all gonna die. This is all happening, and I grabbed my camera and I dropped my 35 millimeter camera, and out in the middle of nowhere in this field, I happened to hit the only rock. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> and in slow motion, my camera explodes. It was a Minolta, I think it was, 35 oh. millimeter. And it goes, and went, oh. <laughs> but then I looked up, and she was just losing it. And so I grabbed her, I put her in the truck, and um, I locked the doors in the truck. 
but I kept the keys because I was afraid she may drive off without us because she was just panicking even in the truck. And then Joe and I grabbed the gear and we threw it in the back of the truck and we got to get out of here. And then Joe looks at me and goes, well, if it's Bigfoot, let's leave something for him. I go, Joe, we got to roll. <laughs> Dude, she's flipping out. We got to get out here. He goes, well, we brought these apples and stuff. Let's just leave these apples. <laughs> so I'm going, okay, it only took a second, you know. <laughs> so we started, just in case, we just wanted to leave something there and just get out of there, right? And then as we started to do that, we both heard this, this screaming coming from the forest, running towards us. It was just, rah, rah. Really loud. It was getting louder and louder and louder because it was something large. Let's say an elk. I don't know what it, it could have been an elk, but it was screaming and it was getting louder and louder. And it was coming towards us. And I'm standing next to Joe and I'm going, We're going to get run over by something, a moose or an elk or something. I didn't know. You know, I was like, And I got this lady flipping out in my truck. And all of a sudden it went right in the middle of a scream. It was dead silence. Something took it down. Just like that. And so this thing was being chased by something, and it was running for its life. And it was running towards us, the best I can figure, because it was getting louder and louder towards us. And right in the middle of a scream, I mean right in the middle of a scream, as if you just turn off your radio, click, that was it. And everything was dead silence, just dead, dead silence. And the lights had stopped. And I'm looking over at Joe. And I have a, a 40 caliber Glock 22 strapped to my side. It's my service weapon at the time. And I looked at him and said, Joe, whatever took that animal down, this gun isn't big enough to protect us. There's just no way. And he's looking at me and I look over at Joe and his eyes are bigger than his glasses. <laughs> just picture it like a cartoon where they go, whoa, you know, and he was in like disbelief. And I looked over at him and I'm going, we got to roll, dude. We just got to get out of here. Just go. We just left everything. Well, we just left all the fruit stuff. And we just blew, you know, grabbed the rest of our stuff, running back to the truck. We hopped the truck, locked the doors, and I hightailed it out of there, that truck. And I said, we're out of here. We're gonzoed. I don't know what the heck that was. But I think, and the more I thought about it afterwards, I think it was a mutilation. I really do. Because there are some cases, Walsenberg, when I was in Walsenberg a couple of years before, or even like I think it was a year before, I had talked to a hunter who had saw... It was weird. It was a it was a rabbit laying on its right side and a fox right behind it laying on its right side and both of them were killed and, and mutilated and they were probably within a couple feet of each other, almost as if the fox was chasing the rabbit and they're both laying there mutilated. And I had done cases with horses, um, cows, even dogs. And then there was uh, goats out of the Dominican Republic, sheep out of the UK, cows and sheep out of Canada. So I'd been working some of those cases. So the first thing that hit me was we saw the lights. And then something was screaming, coming at us, and then something took it down and, and killed it. I don't want to mess with that. <laughs> that was a scary moment. That was probably one of my my most scariest moments, only because we experienced it. The sound, I can't describe the sound, but it's just like if you go to a Metallica concert and you're sitting in the front uh, or standing in the front. No one sits in Metallica concerts. <laughs> so, <you're laughs> so you're standing in the front and you can feel the bass from the speakers hit you in the chest. Boom, boom. You know, you kind of feel that sensation of the sound waves hitting you. That's what we were feeling. You could feel that row. Whoa, you know, of the animal screaming. And I knew it was a large animal because that sound was resonating towards us and it's such high intensity. This thing was screaming for its life. I mean, it was in sheer panic. At the same time, we have this psychic that was in, in sheer panic too and saying, you know. This was outside of your ray? Uh, we were outside of Ure on top of a mesa. 
okay. 10,000 feet up and out of the middle of nowhere. It became the ranch road turned into a trail type of thing. And and I remember that because uh, the sides of the, of the limbs of the trees were kind of hitting the side of my truck. I'm like, I don't want to scratch my truck, you know? Yeah. But um, yeah. so it was something like that. And then she kept saying, go this way, go this way, this way. She goes, I can't tell you why. And I had my GPS going, so I knew how to get out of there. So I had waypoints going so I could back out. So I knew how to get back out. It was I'll never, ever, ever forget that because I think out of all – I mean, I've been scared before stupid things, and, and I've seen some pretty cool stuff that I've been able to just you know deal with. But this is the first time I actually witnessed something being killed by some unknown, and all the background that I have in, in animal mutilations at that time – was pointing to that the flashing you know that the lights that people see also the ranchers see there's just so much going on and then they have a psychic there that was just losing it i mean you could swear that she was rabid i mean she was foaming at the mouth it was like that it was to the point where she was almost convulsive what did she say afterwards that she thought it was like when she calmed down what was her post-mortem on it she knew that there was something out there she didn't know what it was it was almost as if in her mind it was like a black mass she picked up on it, but she couldn't focus what it was. All she knew, it was danger, 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 danger. That's all she knew, and that her life's in danger, and that we were all going to die. And even afterwards, when I talked to her, she goes, I really thought we were dead. I thought that was it. And Joe and I talked about it over and over again, about what we experienced. For anybody listening, if you're an investigator, you know, obviously your primary concern is your safety. And if you have a witness there, or you have a team with you, it's their safety. If you're the leader... You got to think of them. So uh, even though we stuck around for another five minutes, you know, and everything was going on, you know, I have to think about the safety of the witness. But if we didn't have the witness there, the psychic uh, Joe and I were talking about, we, we might have been stupid enough to go in to the woods to see what happened to that animal. And I hate to say that, but I think we might have done it. Yeah. And if that's the case, I can't tell you if I'd be here or not. Joe he was talking to a person uh, in Tennessee in the Appalachians that, that was also involved with the Bigfoot family, and they had been for generations. And and he saved some money and then went out there on, a, on an investigation. And I couldn't go at the time because I just switched contracts. But it was basically before that, we were doing some research in, in that area, and he had showed me a couple of uh, police reports from the Sheriff's Department at two different areas within Tennessee and Appalachians, but not next to each other, but two different, you know, 50 miles apart. But anyway, he was investigating the possibility of this rogue Bigfoot out there that people were seeing a Bigfoot. And I've done a few Bigfoot investigations just because there's UFO sightings around them. And that's how I got involved. But every now and then, just like humans, you know, you'll get one bad egg, get kicked out of the family unit, get kicked out of the clan and you become rogue. And so um, we were talking about the possibility where people were seeing a rogue Bigfoot. And usually Bigfoot will be to travel in pairs or, or close to their families, but you know, most of them don't go rogue and, and live by themselves unless they're tossed out of the clan or the community. So the first report I read was um, this hunter came across this tree and he's hunting. He comes to trying to find the deer, the animals he's hunting. He comes across this tree and it's a hollowed out tree. And in the middle of the tree is the torso of a man that was stuffed in the tree. And his arms and legs had been ripped off, and the arms and legs were stuck to branches on the tree. And laying in the front of the tree, in front of the torso that was embedded in the tree, was a large caliber rifle that was broken in half, you know, laying there. And uh, I read that report. Of course, you know, Joe and I are looking at this report, says the deputy who wrote it, you know, his comments were, obviously, there's a madman or some psychotic guy out here or something, you know. 
and I'm looking at Joe going, well, this is Bigfoot area. You know how hard it is to pull someone's arm out of their socket? I mean, pull an arm off the body? It's not easy. You can pull it off the socket, right? But you can't literally yank someone's arm off, let alone their legs too. So it took a tremendous amount of strength to be able to pull this guy's arms and legs off and then literally stuff the body, what was left of the body, in a hollow of a tree. So I'm reading this and I'm looking at Joe and he goes, yeah, it's got Bigfoot written all over it. Maybe it's the, the rogue. The best we could figure based on evidence of the body was maybe this hunter saw Bigfoot and took a shot at it. Or even maybe this hunter killed a Bigfoot and this companion took care of the hunter. And then once he killed the hunter, he kind of displayed the hunter as a warning to other hunters in the area what not to shoot at. Because it was was almost as if not a trophy, but a warning sign, the way that I read it. And I can visualize what the deputy had seen, you know, with the body laying there and then the broken gun in, in the front, meaning, you know, this definitely was a guy who had a gun that shot at someone that he wasn't supposed to. This is stuff coming out like Friday the 13th. This is something you would expect to see in a horror movie, right? Yeah. After Jason kills someone and cuts them up, and this is how you see it. It said... It wasn't into great detail because when it involves a human, uh, the police reports are very general. It's not until you read the coroner's report. The problem is, is it's an unknown murder. And so a lot of that stuff is locked up in gag orders. And this goes into have humans been mutilated? Yes. Yeah, there's a case that comes out of Tennessee. There's a case in Canada. I think the big case is what Chile or whatever it was. But because it happens out here in the U.S., these are homicides, and it's an unsolved homicide, so all the evidence is pretty much not at your disposal like a cow would be. And I'm not going to go to some family with some goofy idea they just lost a loved one and say, oh, I think your husband died of being mutilated by aliens, you know? I mean, I'm not going to do that. You can't traumatize people like that. They're already going through losses in their family, and why add to that? So this particular case, we think it was a Bigfoot. Now, the other police report we read there was there was a, a young couple who was day hiking through the woods it's, once again the Appalachians and they come to an, an open area not like a meadow just kind of like an open area and this is exactly what the boy saw there was a bigfoot in the middle of this open area picking up a deer like a bigfoot had just taken down a deer and his girlfriend flipped out she just started screaming you know, the boy was in shock. You know, he's just like, what? You know, and, and she was like yelling, we got to get out of here or whatever. But she was panicking. And the Bigfoot dropped the deer, walked over to the girl and broke her in half and dropped her. They just kind of like, you know, snapped her in half, walked back to the deer, picked up the deer and walked away. Now, when you read the police report or the sheriff's report on that, it says this is what the witness claims. Then under comments, the deputy writes, Possibly a bear walking on its hind legs killed his companion, walked back on his hind legs, picked up the deer and walked away. You've been to Colorado. I live in Colorado. They're not circus bears. You know, they'll get up on their hind legs, but they're not. If they're going to charge you, they're going to charge you in all fours. They're not going to walk on their hind legs to you and kill you. They're going to charge you in all fours and come after you within 30 seconds. You know, he's going to be right on top of you. That's how it is in the real world. So the deputy was speculating what this kid panicked. He was in shock. And what it actually was was a bear, but he thinks it was a Bigfoot. But when you read the actual kid's statement, it was a Bigfoot, and it was walking towards them and then walked back, picked up the deer, and walked away. Do you read it for what it is? I'd been on hunting or finding Bigfoot. One of my investigations was on finding Bigfoot. And 
And I think it was Matt Moneymaker. Oh, no, you know, Bigfoot, you know, benevolent, they, this and that. I'm going, no. And you probably know that too, but that they're not. They'll leave you alone. And they're very, very curious. But if you hurt one of them, they're like anybody else. So they're going to try and protect their own. Now, this particular one we thought could have been the rogue Bigfoot in that area based on this police report because it didn't react like a normal Bigfoot. There was no reason. If you see a Bigfoot and you scream, they usually run off. But if you've got a psychotic Bigfoot or maybe a mentally ill that's not thinking properly or just angered, or who knows? I mean, we have humans like this, right? So, you know, it's really hard to say what's what's going through their minds and, and why they do what they do. But this particular case was anti-human, but not enough where it killed both of them. It just killed the, the one person that was making the noise. The boy, you know, survived. You know, we know how old the boy was. Well, they said they were in their mid-20s, I think it said. They were under 30. So it was. they just said young couple. Yeah. How long ago did that happen? Probably eight years ago, maybe somewhere around there. Because it's been a little while. Yeah, yeah. Chuck, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been great. And I apologize if I, you know, it's just, just there's other stories too, but it's just, you know, and I get I get so excited when I talk. And, <laughs> it's okay. And, and one thing leads to another and oh my God, you know. That's totally so, fine. That's how it works. And I, uh, I'm fascinated with everything that we've talked about. And I've been wanting to do a, a show more focused on the, cattle mutilations too we've been talking about it for a while especially since i have a place to stay and down in the region but you know i don't know that i would uncover anything that you haven't already uncovered just because i can go stay there doesn't mean i would come across anything and it doesn't mean that you won't either so yeah. i mean you have family there or friends yeah. um the one personality trait you have to have as an investigator and this is the one my wife hates about me is i can walk up to anybody and talk to them it doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing. I can walk up and I can carry on a conversation just out of the blue with anybody. I can and, do that. And that's what you got to do. You, you yeah. know, and you just talk to people and you'd be surprised. You just bring it up and you can get some people who think you're crazy and other people go, you know what? This happened and that's how you get your information. Don't be afraid to, to talk to people about it. Yeah. You're going to get shut down sometimes, but you know, the positive things that you're going to get out of it outweigh the negative things. I have no problem talking to people. The more I talk to people, I, I get information all the time. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, you know, at least 40, 45% of the people you talk to has some type of experience. You know, it used yeah. to be like 10%, but that's not true. You know, it's it's a lot bigger than, than, than you think uh, it is. That you think it is. Yeah. It's cool, yeah. though. It's fun. And you'll enjoy it if you just, every guy's out there that are listening, if you decide to do it, you know. If any questions, email me too at my website, ufonut.com, and I'll answer any questions that you happen to have. I, I try to answer all my questions that I get. So I try to get most of the information through email first. And then if I think that what you've got is, is really worth looking at investigating, or if I can't do it because you're out of state, I'll actually try and find someone within your state they can come over and talk to you too. So uh, I've done that numerous, numerous times, you know, working with MUFON and, and other different paranormal groups in other states, trying to get someone there to help people. All right. Well, we'll make sure our listeners get that information. Thank you again so much. And, you know, I'll, I'll keep you posted. Thanks a lot, Chuck. All right. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. 
You used to tease me a lot about how shoddy the Wi-Fi <laughs> signal was here in the studio, but it's pretty good now since we installed Eero, right? That wasn't so much teasing as an actual annoyed complaint. Well, no, you're right. I thought we'd have the studio hardwired before that, but honestly, with Eero, we're not missing all the wiring, and installing it literally took just a few minutes. Well, one thing I enjoy most with Eero is that I get a full, robust signal in the studio out in the back of the house, and then when we walk all the way into the living room in the front of the main house, that strong signal is continuous. No interruption and no drop calls. And as a dad with a curious nine-year-old and a wife and with all of us checking out stuff on the internet at once, the other thing I love with Eero is the security. And now with Eero Plus, we can feel safe from growing cyber threats like malware, spyware, phishing attacks, and also protect the kiddo from unsuitable content. This combination of Eero's hardware with Eero Plus provides simple, reliable, and complete protection for our whole network and all of our devices. Eero Plus also offers the ability to block malicious and unwanted content across your entire network, and by checking the sites you visit against a database of millions of known threats, it prevents you from accidentally visiting malicious sites, but without slowing you down. I can choose what my kid can and cannot visit, right from the Eero app, because Eero Plus automatically tags sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content. And the wife and I both hate annoying ads and pop-ups, so we both love Eero Plus's ad-blocking feature, which also improves load times on ad-heavy sites, so we're browsing and streaming faster than ever. Eero Plus also offers third-party security apps like VPN protection from EncryptMe, password management from 1Password, and antivirus software from Malwarebytes. So here is a great deal that will immediately improve your internet experience and protect you completely while doing it. Get $100 off the Eero Base unit and two beacons package and a year of Eero Plus by visiting Eero.com slash legends. That's E-E-R-O dot com slash legends and at checkout enter promo code legends one more time go to eero that's e-e-r-o dot com slash legends and enter promo code legends at checkout you ever been burglarized uh no i mean i've had stuff stolen have you yeah i have and it sucks and for those of you who've had your place broken into, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of the worst feelings there is. It's just such a violation of your space. And not to mention having irreplaceable mementos stolen. Well, I vowed I wouldn't let that happen again. That I'd get some kind of security system in place. But I hadn't found a good solution that fit my place and my budget. I mean, something that does more than just take a picture of the jerks ripping you off. And that's as far as it goes. <laughs> Until the Simply Safe home security system came along. Exactly. We're both big fans fans of Simply Safe Home Security, and here are a few reasons why. For starters, it's really easy to set up. My nine-year-old did most of it while I supervised, and he thought it was a lot of fun. Secondly, and most importantly, it's always ready, no matter what gets thrown at it. We had a windstorm a few days ago that knocked out our power, and Simply Safe was still ready. Even if an intruder destroyed your keypad, or your siren, or even cut your phone line, Simply Safe will still get you the help you need. Maybe you think all that's overkill. Hey, let me tell you something about overkill, all right? It may seem like overkill now, but when one of those things happens to you and you don't have a defense against it, well, then it wasn't overkill. It was pretty critical, wasn't it? Simply Safe is also affordable. 24 7 professional security monitoring is just $14.99 a month, and there are no contracts and no hidden fees. Not too bad for effective peace of mind. So check it out and stop worrying. Go to simplysafe.com slash A-L today. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash A-L to protect your home and your family today. Simplysafe.com slash A-L. 
Hi everyone, this is Matt from Newcastle, Australia. And when I'm not hunting drop bears or the bunyip, I listen to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Well, that's exactly the kind of discussion that should be had over a bunch of beers at a bar, <laughs> which is the tone of what we try to do with the show. But like, man, those stories. Yeah, he is crazy. He has really got a lot of amazing stories and he seems to have boundless energy too. He's yeah. been at this a long, long time for decades. And it's another one of those repositories of information, just as research on animal and cattle mutilations alone and this is something I want to say to these investigators. And Chuck, I know you're probably going to listen to this. I'm not saying you're going anywhere anytime soon, but yeah. please make plans for the legacy of your research. You know, yeah. when you uh, do go on to the other side, you got to leave that somewhere. <laughs> I think about all the, like, yeah. you know, we recently covered Resurrection Mary in Chicago, and uh, it was right. Richard T. Crow, the That's right. investigator and author and, uh, and DJ and folklorist yeah. in the Chicago area, and had this amazing collection of interviews and everything. And I guess that's just... No one's really sure where it is. Maybe the family has a whatever. You There's know. some WGN. I think the radio station there had some. That's what we heard. Yeah. Uh, some late night interviews with him that they brought him on. But it's like what Chuck was saying. You just don't go out and do these investigations if you're curious about Bigfoot. You find a mentor. You yeah. have them take you out. You have them train you to look for the proper things, the clues. It's like being a tracker. <laughs> you know, like that trait is handed down. Those skills are handed down. So there has to be a young generation of people, maybe like uh, our young friend Colin Schneider. Yes. Who is taking a serious approach to cryptozoology. But there's also... It was his birthday today. today. Yeah, yes, today. That's yeah. Right. That's right. He turned recording. 18, this guy we're talking about. <laughs> turned 18 today and has yeah. been a tour de force in the crypto community for years. Well, that's what he said when we met him. He is no longer the crypto boy. He's the crypto man now. Yes, the crypto yes. man. But no, some of these stories, though, it's not just scientific. There's danger involved. It's adventurism. That's what Chuck was saying. That's scary, but that's his adrenaline rush. Getting back to my original point, Chuck, just make a plan for <laughs> yes. your your legacy, what's yeah. going to happen with that, because you've done so much work and collected so much information. That's really important stuff that you're doing and needs to be protected. So I think one of the most interesting things about Chuck is the schism between Bigfoot researchers and believers and UFO and other paranormal believers. There's a bit of a schism. There are some people that think it's all connected, right. but that's an even smaller slice of it's the pie, growing. I would say. It's, it's growing. It's growing. Yeah. It's growing. I would say, again, I haven't tracked this. There's other friends of ours that would know much better because they've been following a lot longer and doing a lot more study on their own. Here's what I'll say. I started noticing it being talked about, that overlapping, you could say the Venn diagram of belief on these different genres, these different fields and topics, probably back around 2005, 2006, when I started listening to a lot more paranormal shows. I'd read a few things here and there, didn't see a lot of popular material based on them, but I did start to notice on shows like Jim's paranormal report and the paranormal podcast when he would have guests on they would talk about it that's why i didn't really think about that they're like oh yeah yeah some of the you know ufo guys i mean they laugh at the bigfoot guys right and the bigfoot guys are going oh you're chasing little green men we're at least chasing an animal yeah <laughs> you know, some, or some kind of humanoid thing yeah it's not flying a craft this seems a lot more plausible and right. we're laughing at you and then the ghost people are like i don't care about any of that right but chuck is open to all this he is yeah, just he's got an insatiable curiosity yeah. and then the other thing he's bringing to the table 
is investigative skills, which right. he are highly developed. I mean, he had worked with the uh, Sheriff's Reserve Office, I believe it was. I might be misquoting the service, but I think that's what it was. So he's a trained investigator. Yes. He's got training with weapons, firearms. He's a good guy. If you're going to be going out doing this yeah. stuff, he's got the right background. Right. And one of the things that I took away from the book, The 37th Parallel, which I read in preparation mm-hmm. for the interview, was how meticulous he was about his investigations. Yeah with the mutilated animals. You know, everyone calls it cattle mutilation, but it's it's not just cattle. It's horses. It's other animals as well. He's investigated everything. And you hear these sort of platitudes about, oh, well, it's always a cow and it's X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, there's a lot more going on here. Although there's a lot of common ground in the circumstances. But the first case, the very famous first case was Snippy the horse, which he made a a reference to whose real name was actually Lady. And I think he said that some journalist changed it to Snippy because it was easier to portray. And we've seen that before. It's classic. Yeah, the story story isn't going to, doesn't have enough legs. So we got to (laughs) make the horse have a cuter name. Yeah. Lady was found mutilated on a ranch in 1967 in Colorado, east of Colorado Springs. That was a really mysterious case, but the blood was drained, the strange yeah. wounds, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, that, Was there coring? I believe there was. Sample with coring? Lady. Yeah, yeah, I believe there was. So, that freaks me out. That's yeah, how is that's, that accomplished? And that's yeah. going on with the cattle. And you heard me in the interview, and I've brought it up on the show before, talking about my dad's friends who have a right. ranch in southern Colorado. And one of the first things they said the first time I visited them, and they found out about the podcast, because I, I think mm-hmm. the first time I went there... We were on the air, but we were still in our infancy. And he was, yes, he was, true. the gentleman Tom was like, All you hear around here from the ranchers, and it's so interesting. And I, I think I mentioned this before, but my dad's friends are, have a 99 acre ranch in Tr- Trinidad, I think about 30 minutes west of Trinidad. Yeah. Way in a remote part of Southern Colorado. And this 99 acre ranch makes them the Po folks in the neighborhood right. because everybody else <laughs> yeah. is like these wealthy inventors and yeah. they have hundreds of thousands of acres. And they're running large uh, amounts of cattle. So, some, in some, some cases, yes. yeah. The ranch is full time and they come and go from it. Mm-hmm. You know, like one near them has like 36 buildings and 60 people can come. And there's an airstrip. Yeah. The plane lands on the ranch. Right. It's like a 737. <laughs> so there, there's yeah. all that going on. But what happens is they live down there. And they hang out with all of the people that run the ranches. So they know everything that's going on. There's this buzz about the cattle mutilations and this long history of it. And like Chuck says, it goes back forever. Everyone just knows about it. Yeah. And no one knows what it is. And it's, again, pointing to our opening quote tonight, one of the things that he said, you know, there's been these 10,000 cases. No one has ever caught anyone in the act. And you would think, and again, the other thing that he mentioned in the interview, and I don't know if you re- if you remember this, but one of the things that he said was, in Colorado, a rancher can legally shoot you dead if you're messing with his cattle. Well, so yeah. the risk that you're taking, Frontier if, justice. if this is a human being, you're risking life and limb to pull this off. Right. And there has been talk of these black helicopters that don't make any noise. There's been, and people have been shooting at helicopters. That's the other thing, because mm. they, they talk about in the book, some pilots are afraid to fly over certain ranches yeah. because everyone <laughs> is so skittish right. about what's happening. And then the other story that he talks about in the interview with the cattle that belong to a particular rancher, even though being allowed to graze on neighboring land, mm-hmm. that particular rancher's cattle would get picked out in a group of 100 random cattle. Yeah. And it's the same guy. He lost cattle on his own land. Right. Then he let them go graze on other land because they were, we talked about this a little bit. They'll say, hey, you know, the grass is getting long in this field. Can you send, yeah. your, send your cows over? 
to yeah. cut it down for me. They're doing that. And the same rancher's having the problem. His cows are dropping dead. And now they're not even on his land. Yeah. So what kind of tracking is that? And the, the whole east to west thing and the way the bodies are lying and then the well, quarrying, uh, like you said. Well, I, the east to west thing, I mean, since we've been doing so much ancient history and ancient ritual and death cults, you know, when I first heard east to west, I mean, that's Sumerian, Egyptian. That's the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun. That reminded me of the the Egyptian underworld where uh, Ra meets with Osiris and travels from the west, the setting of the sun, to the east. And that meeting ensures the rising of the sun. It's very symbolic. Yeah. North, south, again, as well. But when you say that it's always, or most often, this pattern that's not random. It seems, uh, I would expect more randomness. And sometimes we know with statistics, there can be a lot of uh, sameness, I guess. Even in rolls of dice, the same number and, and roulette can come up a bunch of times. And that's natural. That's organic. But there's something, it's almost like a message or it's symbolic in a way when it happens all the time. And to me, yeah, that's ancient. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. Until you said that. No, yeah. oh, don't make me say that. Again. <laughs> I just, I'm getting better at yeah, it. Yeah, not too bad. Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, so those things since the beginning of time had significance, and who knows where we got that. Well, of course, it's natural. You can wake up and see that the sun's rising in the east and it sets in the west. And one of the things the book really presses on, and we didn't go really deep into it in the interview, is the whole propensity of these occurrences to happen on the 37th parallel. Yeah. And it's not just in the United States. Right. He had that moment. People always use that meme. I'm not even sure what show it's from, where the guy's got the cigarette and all the yarns on the map, and he's like <laughs> yeah. trying to... But the point is, he is that guy. He's got the... He the, has, the red yarn. He had the map, yeah. and he figured it all out, and he had that epiphany, that moment, yeah. like you said, the orgy of evidence. The conspiracy yarn theory strung web. Yeah. Where you string that together. So what is that about? And he talks about aquifers and water, and that's going to come up a lot in our pending Halloween shows, actually, this idea that this stuff is happening where water is, there's something very fascinating about that. So Mesrick's book is really engaging and interesting. And, you know, as Chuck said, he doesn't get any money from Mesrick's book. They basically bought him out. Mm -hmm. He told a pretty fascinating story. The interview was actually well over two hours. We cut it yeah. down for the show. It's a very casual conversation, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting if you like this kind of uh, subject matter and genre. It's, again, I would love to sit down with this guy with a few beers. So there's a friend of ours who does some paranormal investigations who saw Chuck at a conference because he gives talks regularly like a lot of these folks do. And there is a chance to go hang out with him afterwards and, and have like a glass of wine or something. And she heard him tell these stories. And that's how we kind of found out about it because it was like, she was blown away. She was like, a couple of those scared me so bad. I'm not sure I'll ever go camping again. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and yeah. this person is a very avid outdoors person or, or was, but not alone anymore and not in these areas. It's, yeah. it, they were so terrifying, but that's why I wanted to hear them. One, because it's the scary, spooky season, but also I'd not really heard too many that were that extreme, yeah, vicious. And, and what is fascinating to me, too, is he's a former police officer. So he's looking at it from the inside. When he looks at these police reports, he can explain why it might not be something the public's heard about. Like if you right. have this gruesome murder that's taking place in the mountains of Tennessee or in, mm -hmm. the, in the Appalachians on the eastern side of Tennessee, which is where what he described as a rogue Bigfoot. And, and just 
that to me is the funny name the rogue bigfoot <laughs> well, also a good name for a band but the idea there's people mover like, i think yeah, that's yeah yes, people love, mover god that uh, yeah they're awesome so great uh, and they represent but, each type of uh or or just three colors of of big feet of big yes yes but the point being that this thing is an outcast and violent and you don't want to cross it and yeah. it could be the same one that is making a scarecrow out of a human being yeah that was i mean that's straight out is, of silence of the lambs right there and well, it is the stuff of horror film nightmares, like the ritual. And there is just people being hung up in trees by some mysterious, powerful force. Yeah. It's just classic and frightening because it's one thing when you see it in a movie, but that doesn't happen in real life, does it? And when you say, well, how come I can't look this up or I haven't heard about this? He says, you know what, this kind of case, because it's a potential homicide, let's say it's not a Bigfoot, mm-hmm. still completely frightening. Like, <laughs> well, that's, that means yeah. there's a dude out there, a human yeah. being out there that's dismembering people and breaking guns in half and making a scarecrow. Right. Now it, it's in the realm of Hannibal, the TV show, something that might right. occur on that. Yeah. So the point is, no matter how you look at it, these are terrifying stories. Yeah. But then there's this idea that there's a gag order, you know, because it's an open investigation. Right. If the... Local police force is refusing to believe that a Bigfoot is the perpetrator in this case, and they're treating it like just an open homicide, mm-hmm. an open investigation, that it makes total sense. They're not going to reveal details of the murder because they might be able to use that to entrap someone later. Right, right. And uh, so then you wind up not hearing him. this Catch-22. And you have to forgive me. I have not read The Missing 411. It may talk all just, about this kind of well, stuff. Well, I was just uh, about to say I have not read the books either, but I've heard a few podcasts on them from our friends Adam and Matt over at Graveyard Tales yeah. and a few others covering this. So from what I hear, there are some parallels between this story and that story. Not only in the locations and the geographical specificness of it, yeah, where these happen on a map, if you look, it's a little different. These missing 411, I believe, seems to have gravitated more on the east and west coast. Uh, near the coasts, yeah. All the way through Canada, all the way to the U.S., and I think even through Mexico, there's a huge swath where not much seems to happen at all. Right. There's a weird pattern there, but the you talking about things being reported, it's like there are some mind-blowing cases where people have gone missing or children have turned up deceased and really strange circumstances and it's just ruled as wild animal well because that's all we got yeah it's a wild animal it's like none of the clothes were ripped there was no blood and the person i'm thinking about unfortunately like a small boy who's disappeared uh, i believe it was close to a year but he turns up deceased and, yeah. but they don't know how and the clothes, I believe some of them were off, but not torn, folded, new, like he'd been gone maybe a week. The shoes were clean. The shoes were off. They, I think that's what the some hikers first found, his shoes. They thought it was a boy who had, uh, a shoe had just fallen off. And there's no tears. There's no ripping. There's no decay, no decomposition, other than he may have been dead a few days. And all it's ruled as is wild animal. Right. Had to be a cougar. That's all we got for the public. Yeah. But you know, once you start, and this is the implication, I believe, in this case, is that once you start putting all this data together and you look at the commonalities and the roadblocks put up and the silence and the diversion from the authorities, something's going on and they know about it. And for whatever reason, they're just not saying. 
So I think that applies here. And I don't mean to get conspiratorial, but I always, well, always I, believe that, you know, we don't know everything. You're not... Uh, no, I agree that we don't, yeah. but I think conversely, it's not necessarily a cover-up. I no. think in some cases, yeah. the system has created a blind spot. This no, thing has happened, right. and if your lead investigators are refusing to believe the possibility of something paranormal or supernatural... Yeah then they have to treat a case like that as though a known wild animal right. or a human is involved and they have certain protocols and the way that the protocols are in place and how they choose to follow them winds up sequestering the information, which in turn helps it remain an unsolved mystery, but by the same token, then yeah. it looks like there's a cover-up, even if maybe it wasn't intentional. No, no, I, I agree. I, again, I'm not meaning to sound conspiratorial. That's usually not my nature anyway. What I'm saying is that, uh, yeah, I agree with you in that it's the way you categorize it. You have a certain limited subset of things you can classify this as. So it's a bear, it's a cougar, it's not Bigfoot. And yeah. so what happens, though, is like it ends up in that category. And that's, I guess that's my broader point to some of these cases. It ends up in that category and it remains there and it gets overlooked because it's like, well, that's a cougar attack. Like, well, no, there's a lot more details that are weird to the story that didn't get posted, that did not get reported or are not available to the public. And there's nobody, and then from what I heard also with the 411, you know, it's like, there's no database that they're going to create. You know, I'm not going to get into the specifics of that case. We may cover it later on, but it's a lot of weirdness and reluctance, I will say, to get out the red yarn by the authorities and start making connections. So it's up to people like Chuck and these other investigators and authors to do that work. Because once you do, then you do see something that is unsettling. That's just not explainable. Well, and Chuck, he fits the classic mold. The other thing that I love about Chuck is that he embraces the moniker of nut. You know, he like, <laughs> yeah, I'm he knows a nut. how people view him and, and what some of this is going to be viewed as. Yeah, well, he's yeah. put it on like 25 different license plates. <laughs> And he embraces it. But one of the things that Ben Mesrick kind of says in his book is that he thinks Chuck sort of uses that as a cover. It disarms mm -hmm. people. It's like, yeah. oh, it's the crazy UFO guide. So then he can just come up and ask whatever question he wants. And yeah. maybe you would just answer it because you don't even take anything seriously. But what is happening is a lot of times it's these people, it's people like Chuck that are going out and getting the information together that have the breakthrough. Right. And I think because no one else is truly looking with an open mind. And I have to say, you know, I still have skepticism about Bigfoot, even though I believe a lot of the stories that I've heard. It's a, my needle, as you are fond of saying, my needle on that <laughs> I did not. You coined that. No, I did no, not. you yeah. did. For me, my mind is like, well, if Bigfoot is real, where are the bones? Where's the archaeology that supports deceased Bigfoot, the, the communities that they supposedly yeah, live in? Yeah. What's happened to every single dead Bigfoot? Where are the bones? Where right. are the bones? So, right. you know. Well, th that is more the wood ape, I would say strain of this line of investigation because then you're looking at it as well it's a lost species of sorts or some kind of hybrid species but or how do you or, stay or, lost no. in death you can't hide well no but dead. these are smart creatures you know what i'm saying it's not something that they're totally wild they're maybe as almost as intelligent as us lacking some social graces and good grooming and <laughs> bathing habits yes owing to the skunk ape moniker but that's a valid question that you ask and some of the answers i've heard is well they're very good at covering their tracks and they have been hiding for a long time think of the uh, yanomamo i believe in in uh, brazil they are known as the invisible people mm -hmm. well there's a lot of jungle to hide in but they're stealthy their generations have passed down traits and practices on how to stay invisible and of course 
those are largely impenetrable jungles down there. But when you ask about Bigfoot, it's like, yeah, that's a valid question. Why don't we see any dead ones? Everyone asks that. It's like, well, how come we don't see any uh, lean-tos or some kind of shelter or well, natural the thing cave. is I've seen the shelters, and they are freaky. I've seen the large, right. clearly manipulated structures that were built by something that had thumbs. I've seen those. Yeah. And, well, and like if it's a said, man, yeah. it's like a lot of men who working really hard to make it seem like something large built something. That was kind of crude, yeah. but sturdy and... The and large. I've yeah. seen right those. the nests. Yeah. yeah, and those are freaky. And I've seen the the history you and I both have in our research the the trail signs that seem to be made. And they talk about that in the thirty seventh parallel and in Chuck's investigations. And one of the stories that didn't make the cut for the episode, he talks about a broken branch on a rock that was clearly a marker of some kind that you would have had to be nine feet tall to break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. There's a lot of that going on, and I'm not saying I don't believe in that stuff. I just, I can't figure out yeah. where it comes down, okay. but I can tell you, it is frightening to me. Like, the idea of this poor girl yeah. having her back broken or whatever because she was uh, screaming when well. the one, it had the bear. And when you think about that story, he talks in that story about how the boy clearly had post-traumatic stress or was in shock, and he said, no, it was a Bigfoot, and then the police report was possible bear, bipedal... Yeah maybe walked over bipedally and yeah. attacked the girl and then bipedally retreated. It's like, that's more far-fetched than the Bigfoot. Well, the, unless Bigfoot unless is totally off the bear. table. It's well, a the, Russian circus well, the, bear that escaped No, but we talked about this, Tennessee. this. We talked about this before with Kelly Hopkinsville. If that's not on the table at all, then it's got to be what you work with. So it's upright circus bear, Russian circus bear, or it's a, a giant owl. It's something, it has to be one of those. It cannot be anything that we don't know about. But you talk about, of course, take a trip with me then, Scott, down, uh, you know, tinfoil hat lane here where, okay, the other answer then is interdimensionalism. It's liminal. It's in a kind of a gray space yeah, there. Yeah, so we've where, talked about that. Yeah, yeah, and so even with the Yeti happening and, and popping in and popping out, and that's a limited space up there. There are places to hide, but it's kind of strange. 500 years of Sherpa families living there and they have their own mythology they know what they believe because they've seen it they've heard it that's different from what westerners uh, come and try and find because they don't have the same set of check boxes that the sherpa do it's fewer so it's a bear right it's got to be a bear and then you ask the sherpa it's like it's not a bear we know what bears look like it's more like a gorilla it's like that's not possible yeah. So that's what I'm saying. But if you broaden the scope, and this is kind of where I'm leaning, and again, I, I know that, again, it makes me sound like the UFO nut, but I do believe that's that- That's Chuck's uh, website, by the way. Yeah, ufonut.com. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, check it out. It's a lot of fun. Uh, no, my point is that if you do start to think that there are uh, thin places, if there's areas that things slip in and out, Skinwalker Ranch, there are places near in Chaco Canyon, there are these places that might seem magical where things come in and things go out and they open up, they close, some are more permanent than others. You know, again, in the Pacific Northwest, I mentioned this before, I grew up hearing these stories, especially when they were hot in the 70s. And you'd hear of stuff like, oh, well, we kind of tracked one. Most people just run away. <laughs> when you hear that deep noise that should not be coming from anything, and it's not an elk, these people hunt elk, they know what that sounds like, they know what the bugling sounds like. And some have come, wanted to go check them out. It's like, it should be here. It's just, there's just no trace of them. And it's not like you're trying to hunt a squirrel and it just disappeared behind a tree. This thing's massive. There are only so many places something that's seven, eight feet tall, nine feet tall can hide. 
something weighing four to 500 pounds. So in our last episode, we took a look at a couple of the yokai legends of Japan. Well, guess what's a lecture in the Great Mythologies of the World series over at the Great Courses Plus? Ah, you must be talking about lecture number 42 from the course called Japanese Tales of Purity and Defilement. That I am. <laughs> yeah, I saw that and I watched that one immediately. Really interesting to go back to the beginning of Japan's rich folkloric tradition to find out where some of these legends may have taken root. We'll tell everyone about Japan's most famous origin story. I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> All right. Here it is in a nutshell. According to the Kojiki, or Record of Ancient Matters, which is a compilation of Japanese myth and history from the early 8th century, there were originally seven generations of spirit forces called kami. In the last of those seven generations, two deities, a male and female named Izanagi and Izanami, were given a magical bejeweled spear and tasked to create the land from the mix of soils and water. They went to the floating bridge of heaven, stirred the waters with the spear, and upon lifting it out of the sea, the droplets fell and created the island of Onogoro, where they went to live. But then... But then, Izanami died while giving birth to a fire deity. Izanagi travels to the penumbral world of the dead called Yomi to convince her to come back. But while Izanagi is told to wait and not look at Izanami while she rests up for her journey in her bedchambers, he can't wait looks at her, and she's horrifying, covered in maggots, worms, and insects. He runs away, and she becomes an enraged, vengeful spirit and chases after him. Well, there you go. Stephen King was right. Better to leave the dead dead. Quite. Well, if you love learning about the great mythologies of the world like we do, and we have a strong feeling you will, you can check out this or any other course right now with a free trial. You will love it. Start your free trial today by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. This is Melody Townsend in Yukaipa, California, and when my husband is writing his doctoral dissertation, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. I think the other thing that's interesting about the one with the guy stuffed in the tree and the, mm. like this makeshift scarecrow, the psychology behind that one is fascinating to me. If it was done by a human, it was done by a strong human with no regard for butchering another person. Yeah, vivisection tendencies. Yeah. And then I think that the other thing that's in a primal way, it sounded very much and looked like a warning. Yeah, it's definitely a sign. It's a and sign. I was I was gonna ask you like uh, ugh, the limbs There's no specific description of ribs, right. how they were arranged, other than that they were stuffed There's, on branches. They were that's yeah. what I was gonna ask. Yeah. yeah. So like on a sharp point of a broken off branch they were stuck on i guess so okay in my mind it was a point being made over total yeah. physical manipulation of this being that took a shot as chuck said at something it shouldn't have taken a yeah. shot at and right again that's like a hannibal lecter display you yeah. know saying you're, you're sending a sign it's a message it's performance art in a very primal kind of way to send a message. And if it's a person, then you would have to think, what would be the motivation of a human in this scenario? Generally, I would think trespassing would be one, or private hunting ground, hunting where you're not supposed to, which happens all the time. Yeah, but that's, but that's, that's homicidal like, maniac tendencies. Yeah, homicidal, yeah. and it's someone who's going to continue to kill that way, whereas this doesn't appear to be part of a long series of similar events. Right. 
or we would have heard about it. That for sure would be on the news. Well, so, but, yeah. so even if, you know, one case you can keep quiet till you try to investigate it or whatever, but if right. there's more than one, what does that tell you about the perpetrator? It tells you that the purpose of the display was more important than the nature of the killing or the quote unquote thrill of doing that kind of kill or it would yeah. keep happening. So the ultimate goal was to make the human scarecrow and send a message to any other human that came up there with a weapon and wanted to go hunting. Right. I guess the attitude, too, of this other one with the young couple, why it killed the girl but left the guy. You know, well, where she, is that she guy? Was, well, she was the one, I think, making the noise that maybe yeah. it found irritating. So it was yeah. like, stop, stop it. If you are the guy in that story and you want to tell your story and you're hearing this right now, reach out to us. Because we want to hear your story. Because you have yeah. to be out there. This was just 2011, I think. Yeah. I uh, mean, that, I can't imagine. This is must, recent. This was recent. Yeah, this must be horrifyingly traumatic to this day. Yeah. PTSD. And, you know, because you're seeing that and you're helpless to do anything about it. If that was what happened there, then it's like something with a ragdoll. Here's another thing I wanted to touch on. You and I talked about this off the air a little bit, and I wanted to include it in the show, was... Chuck makes it pretty clear when he tells the story, both to Ben Mesrick based on the way he portrayed it in the 37th parallel. And he, and Chuck made this point at the beginning. Mesrick, you know, he takes the story, he does what authors do. He tells the story out of order. He jumps around a right. little. He makes it an interesting story. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole kind of other backstory behind that about it being optioned for a film and the studios needed to have it be based on a book. So they kind of reverse engineered it. Yeah, yeah. But the fascinating thing there, I think, is Chuck says, you know, we don't know what it was that was running out of the woods in that other story. It was big and it was loud and it was scared. Yeah. But Forrest and I both were like, well, was it a Bigfoot? Because here's the, this is what's <laughs> interesting. And I wish I'd asked Chuck this question. Yeah. I obviously, I could just call him back or email him. But, you know, we had the psychic who, and he was sort of laughing at this too, who says the Bigfoot family is, it wants me to come meet it. It wants to meet investigators. Yeah. So they're like, okay, they get in the car, follow her. They go out to this Mesa, they set up their observation gear, and then this event happens. And the event culminates with some creature running for its life in their general direction from the woods where they had been summoned by a psychic to come. This begs all kinds of questions. First of all, what was the creature coming out of the woods? Now, Chuck, at no point did he say that he thought it was a Bigfoot. Right. He seemed to think it was a large, scared animal, like he said, an elk or something else very large that was running. And whatever it was that killed it, killed it without even a gunshot. He did not describe ever hearing a gunshot or anything like that. It just stopped screaming, yeah. whatever yeah. it was. So I guess the question there is, if the psychic wasn't psychic, and she just was mm -hmm. a little bit off a rocker and took them out there on, and then it was a coincidence that they ran into this? Or where were those messages that were coming to her that told them to go to this place, if you believe any of this at all? <laughs> well, that's, you know, that sometimes that happens. Yeah, yeah, and if there was a Bigfoot family. Yeah, where are they? Yeah, and how are they? There's just, I have just so, so many I, questions I well, about it, that story, <laughs> and I'm not saying that I... Don't believe it because right. it's a very he compelling heard, story. No, he heard he at least heard the noise. Yeah, and the lights flashing and coming out. Okay, so hearing that, you know, that was of course. Now, in all fairness, when I hear a few details and I'm uh, well, I could be paying attention as well. My mind often goes to the least likely or expected 
conclusion or scenario. That's just how my brain works. And so when I first heard that, it's like lights in the woods, something thundering and screaming and a low guttural noise running out of the woods being chased. To me, that sounded like Bigfoot being chased by some kind of possibly interdimensional game warden yeah. <laughs> that snatched it up. Yeah. So now we're back to Indrid Cold chasing after like loose cryptids or something. Yeah. Something kind of wild. Yeah. But that's what I first thought is that it wasn't a large animal. And because, yeah, I've heard elk run through the woods, you know, and they're, I don't know, 600, 700, 800 pounds. Moose get up to about a thousand pounds, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a thunderous stomping, but it's very distinctive. This sounded different. I mean, the way you described it anyway. Yeah. And the noise it made. And it's like, <laughs> that's just what I thought. Something's chasing Bigfoot out of the woods and got to it. It's like, well, come yeah. on, buddy. We're and coming then, back. And then, you know, I don't know if you remember, but at the, towards the end, Chuck said, well, you know, if we hadn't had the witness who we needed to protect, we might have gone down there. And I don't know if I'd be here today. But then the other thing that he said was that he had to entertain the possibility that whatever it was that was killed, that this was him witnessing one of the mutilations that he'd studied so many of happening in real time. Yeah. And then what if he had gone down there and found the carcass of a large known animal, right? but that had the blood drained and all that other stuff, and then all that noise and everything preceded it. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and the other thing that I thought was fascinating too is what he talked about in his interview, the woman that lived on the ranch that wouldn't go outside anymore Yeah, because she was afraid of the lights and whatever it was that was mutilating the animals. And that's saying something because I know, again, from my dad's friend's ranch down there, there's things to be afraid of when you go outside. There's, oh, sure. there's bears. Oh, you mean natural Yeah, yeah, uh, natural things. stuff yeah. to be afraid of. Right. These ranch people that live on these ranches, they're tough hombres. They don't care about much. And <laughs> yeah. so for me, that was a very sobering thing to hear, that this woman who lived on a ranch yeah. was afraid to go outside because nothing scares those people. Yeah, so growing up, as I've said before, I've never been afraid of the woods. They've always felt comforting to me. I loved camping, still do, love going for hikes. You know, the woods and nature has always felt like hitting the reset button, like rebooting for me. And you feel recharged when you get back, to, especially to the city. And Bigfoot never really scared me. I'd heard stories and even stories from friends of my grandparents or, or neighbors up there. And I believed them. They had seen strange things. Nothing where it was great evidence. But it was always kind of awkward or just strange and scary. You don't want to see that. You don't want to interact with it. But basically, you leave them alone, they leave you alone. That's the general <laughs> rule of the woods and nature. But these stories that I just heard, they give me pause and some chills. And I thought that's why it'd be a great subject and something to talk about, especially around Halloween, because I've not heard these stories very much. And uh, yeah, puts a chill in you, doesn't it? So maybe it's one of those days where you're out on your favorite hiking trail and it's well known, but it's a little remote maybe, or you're at your family's favorite campsite and maybe you're camping off the grid a little and it's not in a national park, but it's like BLM land and maybe everything seems fine and maybe it's the wrong time of day you're there and the wrong spot. Maybe on one of those occasions, you end up as one of those unsolved cases. Thank you. 
that's going to wrap up this episode of Astonishing Legends. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with our Halloween special for 2018. This is not an episode you're going to want to miss. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. My name is Grace. Hi, I'm Jonathan, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. Hi, I'm Matt Baldwin. Grace. This is Melody Townsend. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Grace. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>